This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the special meeting of July 25th, 2023. The time is now 9 a.m. We are meeting in person today at the Seattle Tacoma International Airport Conference Center and virtually via Microsoft Teams. Present with me today are Commissioners Calkins, Feldman, and Mohammed, who are currently gathered in the executive session room awaiting the opening of public meeting. Commissioner Hazagawa is recused from participation in the executive session and will join for the 12 noon business meeting. We'll now recess into executive session to discuss one item regarding litigation and or potential litigation or legal risk for RCW 42.30.110 sub 1 sub I and complaints about public officers or employees per RCW 42.30.110 sub 1 sub F for approximately 145 minutes. We will reconvene into public session at 12 p.m. noon. Thank you. This is Commission President Sam Cho reconvening the special meeting of July 25th, 2023. The time is currently 12.13 p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Seattle Tacoma International Airport Conference Center and virtually via Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, please call the roll of all commissioners in attendance. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Commissioner Calkins joining virtually. And we'll come back. Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Do we see him? Copy? Oh, nope. You. Okay. So we do have four in attendance and we expect okay. Commissioner Calkins to be joining. All right. A few housekeeping items before we begin today. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn off your cell phones to silent or put them on silent. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you're the member of the uh, member of the commission or executive director participating virtually, or you are a member of staff in a presentation or actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak, and will turn them back off again at the conclusion of their remarks. For everyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. Please also remember to address your request to recognize to, be, to speak through the chair and, and wait to speak until you have been recognized. You'll turn, off, uh, you'll turn your Microsofts on and off, microphones on and off as needed. All of the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you in advance. All votes today will be taken by roll call methods, so it's clear who, uh, for anyone participating virtually, how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website. It may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please now stand and join me for the Pledge of Allegiance. All right, the first item of business today is approval of the agenda. As a reminder, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, it is not necessary to pull the item from the consent agenda. Uh, you may just offer supporting or uh, opposing comments at the time of the motion to approve the consent agenda on the floor. 
uh, before the vote is taken. If you, uh, if a commissioner wants to ask questions of staff, however, or wishes to have a dialogue on an item, it is appropriate to request the item to be pulled for separate discussion. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or motions to arrange the order of the day? Seeing none, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda as presented? So moved. Second. Excellent. The motion has been made and seconded. Are there any objections to approval of the agenda as presented? Hearing none, the agenda is approved. There are no special orders of the day for today's meeting, so we're going to move right along to the Executive Director's report. Executive Director Metric, you have the floor. Good afternoon, Commissioners. I'd like to begin my, my remarks by expressing my gratitude to everyone who contributed to the successful Commission budget retreat yesterday. Uh, in a relatively short session, we were able to do a deep dive into airport finances, tax levy options, and both Commissioner and Budget Division priorities for the year. We have a lot of work ahead of us until we present the 2024 budget in November. However, I believe that our Commission budget retreats from last month and yesterday have positioned us very well for success and laid a strong foundation. I hope you feel the same. Later during today's meeting, we'll share more about the 2024 budget development process for the public's benefit. I look forward to continuing the conversation as we move into the division-specific budget presentations in the fall. Before we proceed with today's agenda, I'd like to share some operational highlights. First, as of this past weekend, we are officially halfway through our scheduled cruise calls for the season. A huge thanks and job well done to the maritime staff who have been able to manage record levels of travel with minimal issues. Of course, our goals for our cruise business are both economic and environmental, and we are leaders in both. We achieved a major milestone and uh, in in furthering this with the arrival of our submarine cable that will carry power from Terminal 46 to Pier 66. We look forward to having Pier 66 shore power ready to go next cruise season, which will make us the first berth in the entire world to have three shore power capable berths for cruise operations. Second, I'm very pleased to share another milestone. Yesterday was the all-time record for the number of passengers processed through TSA checkpoints at Seattle Tacoma International Airport. According to TSA figures, they screened 73,651 passengers, over 100, over 1,000 more than the old record of 72,154. This is an important milestone in the region's air travel recovery from the pandemic, and also a stark reminder of how critical our suite of upgrade SEA projects are so that we can accommodate passenger demand and provide a greater level of customer experience. I want to thank everyone at the airport under Managing Director Lance Little's leadership, including operations, customer service, and as well as our partners at TSA, the airlines, and others for everything they do to help ensure the smoothest possible experience for air travelers during this exceptionally busy time. Lastly, I'd like to reiterate a message I highlighted during my recent town hall regarding the recent decisions of the United States Supreme Court. Like many, I am disheartened and concerned with the impacts of the decisions regarding affirmative action and LGBTQ plus rights. We join in solidarity with all of the organizations, institutions, communities, young people, and families reeling from these decisions and we will continue to do everything in our power to advance equity, diversity, and inclusion inside our organization and within the communities we serve. I want to reaffirm that the Port of Seattle is fully committed to advancing equity, diversity, 
and creating a culture of inclusion and belonging. In this moment, it feels like this work is needed more than ever, especially within a government agency like the port, which has both a regional and national impact. We will continue to implement the strategies and work that we believe will help us create meaningful, lasting change. It is not only the right thing to do, but it makes us a more successful business in, in all the work that we do. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight a few items. On our action agenda, you, you will receive a briefing on the authorization requests related to sound insulation, the sound insulation program. I know that commissioners are very focused on delivering these programs to near, near airport residents, and I am excited for you to hear about the significant progress we are making, not only in direct sound insulation, but also at the federal policy level as well. Finally, you'll also receive a briefing on efforts to revitalize the central waterfront. We've been working closely with Friends of the Waterfront and the Waterfront Seattle and Waterfront Seattle to stay coordinated on their incredibly exciting and ambitious agenda for Seattle's waterfront. We want to be part of this major new amenity for the local residents and visitors while simultaneously ensuring that our waterfront operations can continue effectively. Today's briefing is an excellent opportunity to see what is coming and to look for opportunities for continued coordination and collaboration. Commissioners, this concludes my remarks. Excellent. Thank you very much, Executive Director Metric. We're going to go on and uh, go on to committee reports. Commission Strategic Advisor Erica Chung will provide the report. Erica. Uh, good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. I have three reports for you today. On July 18, Commissioners Mohammed and Calkins convened the Aviation Committee where they were briefed on four items, accessible initiatives at the airport, partnership with local governments, and an order outlining future accessibility goals, an update on the FAA reauthorization legislation in the Senate and House and their progress, Concourse C retail space lease opportunity and timeline, TNC virtual queue process on how TNC drivers could wait at lot 160 and drive over once requested by customers, and commissioners also discussed public members board term on ports accessibility committee and support the two-year board term and rotation to make it more equitable and inclusive to broader accessibility committees. Also on July 18, Commissioner Hasegawa, Hasegawa and Calkins convened the Equitable and Workforce Development Committee. There were two items for briefing and discussion. First was a high-level update on Port's anti-human trafficking initiative, and second was on recent ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court on affirmative action and free speech, LGBTQ rights, and how it may affect the port. Commissioner Hasegawa requested staff to further examine options to bolster the port's anti-human trafficking initiative, and staff will continue to track and monitor impact on recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings. The uh, Joint Advisory Committee meeting with the C City of SeaTac was held on July 18th also with Commissioners Mohammed and Felleman in attendance. JAC received an update on the Ports Commission's adoption of the Environmental Land Stewardship Principle Order and SCA land stewardship efforts. JAC also received an update uh, from Port Senior Federal Government Relations Manager Eric Schinfeld, who gave a rundown on the North SeaTac Park rela related provision and the four shared start priorities that are included in the FAA reauthorization bill. This concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you so much for that report. Does anybody have any questions regarding committees? 
Seeing none, we are now at the public comment section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. And before we take public comment, let's review our rules for in-person and virtual comment. Clerk Hart, please play the recorded rules. The Seattle Commission welcomes you to our meeting today. As noted, public comment is an important part of the public process, and the Port of Seattle Commission thanks you for joining us. The Commission accepts in-person, virtual, and written public comment regarding matters related to the conduct of port business. Before we proceed, here are the Commission's public comment rules of procedure for your information. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two-minute period for each speaker. The Commission reserves the right to receive comments specifically related to the conduct of port business. If comments are not related to the conduct of port business, the presiding officer will stop the speaker and ask that comments be kept to matters related to the conduct of port business. This rule applies to both introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the Commission as a body and not to individual Commissioners. Disruptions of Commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior and language. Obscene language and gestures. Refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment. Leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment, provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk. And any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Any disruption will result in a speaker's microphone being immediately shut off by the presiding officer and a warning or loss of speaking privileges or removal from the meeting room. All right, our first speaker is going to be Patrick Dugan. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Patrick Dugan. I'm the port captain for Vane Brothers in Seattle, <clears throat> and we are a small bunker fleet. And what I just want to talk about <clears throat> today is a little bit about the importance of the cruise industry and what it means for Vane Line bunkering. So we have 42 employees, full-time employees. 90% of them are all local to the Puget Sound. We run three tugs, three barges, and we have two different cargoes on there. All right, so when <clears throat> the cruise industry is the season is on for those six months of the year, Thursday through Saturday, the Pier 90, two-thirds of the fleet is employed, right? So it takes up, a, the cruise ships being here definitely utilizes our bunker service. Uh, so it, it keeps our waterfront workers busy. It keeps our waterfront workers employed. And like I said, they're all local. Also, I'll think about the local vendors that we support, right, from the ground transportation to the launch services, also the shipyard, right? We employ all the shipyards in the Puget Sound region. Um, so, yeah, our robust cruise industry is vital to Vane Brothers. And uh, ever since the 1800s in the gold rush, right, it, Seattle is the gateway to Alaska, and the cruise industry is still proving that to be true. So we just like to thank uh, the Port of Seattle and the Commission for the support of the cruise industry. That's all I have to say. Thanks. 
Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Um, our next speaker is David Blanford. Good afternoon, President Cho and Port Commissioners. I'm Dave Blanford. I'm CEO of State of Washington Tourism, and I'm speaking as well on the 2023 cruise season today. Our ongoing statewide partnership with the Port of Seattle supports statewide travel and tourism, including business recovery programs, statewide tourism assistance, international tourism promotion, responsible outdoor travel and stewardship, and DEI. At the peak of the 2023 cruise season, I want to acknowledge the port's significant role in stimulating tourism demand. This cruise season business supports, cruise business supports $900 million in economic activity, 5,500 jobs, and $14.5 million in state taxes. We know that cruise business does great things for the local and regional economies, but its growth potential extends throughout Washington State as we work together to expand pre- and post-cruise tours and excursions. This business matters to rural and underserved communities, particularly many of them relying on, on tourism as an economic driver as much as 15 times that of urban communities. Beyond the impact numbers, the Port of Seattle and State of Washington Tourism have aligned on the importance of environmental sustainability and tourism stewardship. As such, we are proud of the port's leadership, including its aggressive cruise ship shore power goals and its noteworthy commitment to the world's first cruise-themed green corridor. Congratulations on a stellar cruise season, and on behalf of the statewide tourism industry, we thank you for your support. Thank you so much, David. So that concludes our signups for today. Is there anyone else present on the team's call or present in the room today who didn't sign up who wishes to address the commission? If so, please state and spell your name and the state the topic related to the conduct report business that you wish to speak about for the record. All right. Hearing none, at this time, I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of written comments received. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Commission President, members of the Commission, Executive Director Metric. We've received 35 written comments prior to our meeting today. These have been distributed to you in advance of the meeting and will become a part of the public record. All written submissions today come from citizens who write to ask the Port Commission to cap the number of 2024 season sailings and passengers at or below 2019 levels, reducing the numbers every year until the industry no longer pollutes the oceans and air and no longer emits climate changing greenhouse gas emissions. The submitters are Wendy Ashman, Ant Blassie, Robin Briggs, Beth Brenton, Valerie Costa, Gregory Denton, Arun Ganti, Derek Genville, Angela Germano, Bree Glinchit. Lynn Clid, Becky Hall, Jared Howell, Esther John, Sophia Keller, David Kipnis, Jason Lee, Lori Lucky, Scott McClay, Rosemary Moore, Barbara Osteen, Sarah Sanford, Philip Singer, Janie Starr, Lauren Wilson, Linda Carroll, Kevin Gallagher, Mary Hansen, Andrea O'Farrell, Karen Cowgill, Erica Berg, Ann Robertson, Linda Golly, Gordon Adams, Kathy Pendris, Cynthia Irvin, Stacey Oaks, and Irene Svet. And that concludes the written comments we've received today. All right, great. Hearing no further public testimony, we'll move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda 
items concerning 8A, 8B, and 8C. So moved. Seconded. Great. The motion was made and seconded. Before we take the vote on the consent agenda motion, I would like to take a moment to recognize passage of the new interlocal agreement with Seattle College College's tele, uh, Cable Television, SCCTV. Uh, with passage of our consent agenda today, we want to thank SCCTV for their continued partnership with the port and for their assistance in helping us bring access, visibility, and transparency of our governing process to the communities we serve. With that, please, commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called for approval of the consent agenda. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm on. I don't believe Commissioner Calkins has joined this meeting, so we'll go to Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. The motion passes. All right, we're moving along in the agenda. We have two new business items today. Clerk Hart, please read the first item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10A, authorization for the Executive Director to authorize $20 million of the program budget for long lead electrical, mechanical, and curtain wall equipment and other long lead materials for the Sea Concourse Expansion Program. Commissioners, the team for the Sea Concourse Expansion Program are working to accelerate delivery of this transformational project by 2026. This authorization is to procure long lead time items such as air handling units, ele electrical equipment, and curtain wall materials. It is critical to meeting this deadline. Uh, once complete, the expansion will address shortfalls in airport dining and retail capacity, office space, and premium lounge space, as well as other public amenities to elevate the customer experience and upgrade SEA. Presenters are Rick Duncan, Director of Aviation Business and Properties, and Janet Scherer, uh, Capital Program Leader. So I guess I'm going to turn over to I'll, I'll kick it off real quick. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you, Executive Director. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Rick Duncan, Director of Aviation Business and Properties, and I'm the sponsor of the Sea Concourse Expansion Project. Uh, it's no secret how space-constrained uh, our airport is. You could just walk down there right now, and, and it's, it's very tight. And as been mentioned many times before, we, we can't go out, so we're going to go up. So that's exactly what we're doing here. Uh, we're essentially building a high-rise building in the middle of an operating terminal, which is just crazy and amazing to watch and uh, really exciting. And this environmentally friendly building uh, will put in new ADR spaces, a beautiful circulation area, um, two-story AS lounge, and topped off with uh, a solar roof. And um, it's really exciting to see this come to fruition. And as Janet will get more into the details and give you guys some eye candy about it. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Rick already covered. Oh, is this on? Can you tap it? Oh, yep. Um, Rick already covered um, a lot of what this, uh, the purpose of the Sea Concourse Expansion Program is. And we are going to increase airport revenue um, by adding some airport dining and retail spaces, a leasable office space, and a lounge. And we're also going to increase the size of the sea freehold room so more folks will be able to. Um, wait for their plane in that hold room and add several much needed passengers amenity including 
some restrooms, a nursing room, an interfaith prayer and meditation room, and um, some passenger lookouts over the airfield that I'll show you a little bit um, more on that later. And of course, this overall increases economic opportunities for the region. Next slide. <coughs> So in addition to all these um, revenue and customer service goals, the Sea Concourse expansion project also includes several sustainability initiatives. Um, we've talked a little bit about this at previous briefings, but um, I wanted to let you know that these are all still in the project. We're now at 100% design. And the Sea Concourse expansion program um, has rooftop photovoltaics, the first at the airport. Um, we're going to have all fossil fee, this is hard to say, fossil free fuel heating <laughs> in this. Um, we're going to have heat pumps on the roof. Um, and this is all developed through the sustainable framework. And we have um, briefed the Sustainability Commission that's part, um, part of the Port Commission on this at the beginning of the project. Um, one other nice feature is this project is going to be able to reduce 90% of the carbon that's generated for the new construction of the project also. And let's go to the next slide. The Seacon Course expansion project is part of the Upgrade SEA campaign that um, everyone has heard a little bit about. This means that we are collaborating with external relations and a whole host of other stakeholders um, to make sure that our project page on the website includes all of the latest information about the project um, and important milestones and inf whatever information the public might want to know about it. Next slide. So for the location, um, on this slide you can see the Sea Concourse expansion kind of in the middle there. And it is located in an extremely busy part of the airport, right in between um, the intersection of Concourse C and Concourse D. This building is primarily being used by the TSA right now. So we are very busy building other spaces for them in the terminal and then we'll move them out when we get started on the major construction. Um, it's going to add four floors to the existing building, which right now ends at concourse level. Next slide. Project status. So this project, um, contains several different design packages, some of which we have accelerated to be able to start building them um, the same time we're finishing design on some of the other packages. So right now we've got a civil and structural foundation package and a tenant relocation package, which is all under construction. We also have vertical transportation, that's elevators and escalators and a structural steel um, package that are under contract and they're starting on shop drawings for those. The main package, um, as I mentioned, it's at 100% design and right now we are um, getting that permitted. Next slide. So I like to say that CCE is in a not very glamorous phase of construction right now, but these are some photos of the work that's underway. The first um, photo there on the left um, shows kind of the close quarters that we have. This is inside the Sea Concourse expansion existing building, the C1 building it's called, and 
there's a lot of work that we're doing to reinforce the foundation inside the building. And that gives you an idea of kind of what it takes to get that work done in the existing building. And the other two are just some demolition that was required of the existing concrete paving on the air side. And the right side shows that we're using a trench box there to um, keep that safe as we dig. Next slide. Oh, okay, so this is a really quick um, video of the exterior of the building. Let's go ahead and start that. Hopefully it'll work. Yay. So it starts off, you can see the PV panels up on the roof. And as it goes around, you get a good look at how the glazing and the amount of light that we're bringing into the space. Um, and you can also see how it, um, the scale of the building compared to the adjacent terminal. Um, and as we go around, you'll see that there's um, public lookouts. You can see the people out there on the corner. Um, these, the top floor is part of the Alaska Lounge, and the um, kind of mid lookout there is open to the public if you're in the concourse. It looks like you're outside, but it is mostly enclosed with glass. It's not conditioned, so you'll feel like you're outside. Next slide. There we go. Um, so as the video ended, you saw that kind of landed on this facade right here. This is um, the electrochromic glazing that you see on what we call our folded facade because it has kind of a serrated appearance. The electrochromic glazing is going to um, automatically tint depending on how much light hits it to eliminate our ability to have any kind of mechanical shading on this facade and make sure that all those days where, you know, we don't have bright glaring sun, we're able to get as much sun into the building as possible. But um, it's going to reduce on some of our lighting costs as well. Next slide. It's an interior rendering, gives you a nice view of the acoustical wood ceiling that is a primary architectural feature. Um, you can also see um, the architectural tree, we're calling it, um, that is going to be kind of a wayfinding feature as well. On the right side there, you can just barely see one of our um, small business kiosks. There'll be a handful of those sprinkled throughout the building. And far off in the background, um, you can get a look at an L-shaped video wall that five different artists have put together some short format um, art videos that are going to be showed on that um, in a continuous loop. Next slide. This is a, a shot of what we call our performance stair. Um, these stairs afford a really kind of unique opportunity for people to rest, eat, recharge their devices, um, great people watching from here, and watch performances as we're showing in the rendering. Um, there's going to be art on these as well. Three different artists are going to um, provide faces for the tables that you can see in the rendering. And there's also an escalator that you can't really see here um, that's going to take people up to the mezzanine level as well. On the left side of this, you can see the stairs that go up to those public lookouts. And there is um, 
an escalator and elevator that will take you up there as well. Next slide. Okay, so here are a few key milestones for the project schedule. Um, if today's authorization is approved, we're going to go ahead and get those long lead equipment and materials on order right away, and we're working with Turner to be able to execute those as soon as possible. In um, a couple months, we're shooting for the end of September, which I guess is quarter three, not four, um, we'll be back here to request our maximum allowable construction cost. We call it a MAC. Um, that's going to set our final schedule and budget for the whole project. And then early next year, quarter one, we're going to head and start what we call phase two, which is construction of a tower crane, demo of some of the existing building, and start of the structural steel. We're currently targeting quarter two of 2026 for an early completion date. We do not yet have a contract schedule yet, you know, with Turner Construction, our GCCM partner. So we still are carrying a range um, of about a year for that completion date. But by the time we come back here in the next couple months, we'll nail that down to one final completion. I know there's a lot of interest in getting the space as complete as possible before the Men's World Cup in 2026. So. That is something that we're working with to Turner to try to define what will be done, how much can we get done, and you know, can we return all the gate to service that we've been using. Next slide. So for today's authorization, um, we've been before you for previous authorizations for some of our enabling work, the aforementioned structural steel packages and vertical circulation packages, um, also for exterior wall mainly that um, we performed a mock-up of that folded facade to make sure that it worked as designed. Just a sec. And we're to the point where we can't really execute any more early work packages without exceeding our current authorization. So today what we want to request authorization for covers some really long lead electrical and mechanical equipment and some of the exterior wall materials. So things like distribution gear, electrical panels, switch gear, air handling units, the heat pumps, those sort of things. This is going to help us um, accelerate our project delivery, try to drive towards that earlier completion date, and really lock in pricing with these vendors because we're seeing a lot of, still <laughs> seeing a lot of really volatile prices and really long lead times on just about anything that uses a computer chip. Next slide. Okay, so here is a quick overview of our current project budget. Our MII approved budget is $340 million. And last time we were here, we were projecting that our range to complete was going to be anywhere between $340 million to $420 million. Now at 100% design and working with Turner Construction, We've been able to narrow that range, and right now that range is between 405 and 420 million. The budget trends that brought us from the 340 to the 405 million are kind of categorized in those four categories that you see on the slide. The discretionary scope changes, we have only had one, and it was to add some infrastructure 
um, in our main restrooms that would support a future smart restrooms project that another project is working on here um, at the airport. And we've had a few non-discretionary scope changes as well. Um, some examples of those include those sustainability initiatives that we identified at the beginning of the project. The usual, just because the markets are up, we've had this nice, you know, well, it's 52 weeks Thank you. Um, we've had, um, in addition, some other non-discretionary scope changes, such as adding some cameras. Um, for the ramp tower to make sure that they had safe views while the building was being built. And escalation and design development, this reflects the um, change that is somewhat anticipated as a project gets refined and designed. But we had identified um, $53.8 million that were beyond what we would have anticipated in inflation and escalation costs. For risk contingency, we're still carrying $10 million in risk contingency because we have not completed our negotiations with um, Turner Construction on that final MAC. And we think there's still a little bit of volatility out there. We've got um, a handful of bid packages that um, are still out there on the street and we want to account for any um, bids that might come in higher than anticipated. So our current range is now 405 to 420 million. Next slide. So a lot of the things we've talked about um, today are really about trying to mitigate some of these risks. And in particular, the authorization that I'm requesting today um, for the long lead items um, speaks to really the first two items that are on this list. Um, one of the plan mitigation strategies was to identify some long lead items and go ahead and lock those in and accelerate that design so that we can get them on order when they need to be ordered. As, uh, infl inflation and escalation, as I mentioned, we are still seeing a lot of price instability and it's really difficult to estimate some of these packages that we've um, got included in the project, but we have identified some of these early work packages so we can get the vendor on board and really start talking to them and vetting their pricing to make sure that it reflects what we really need. Complex phasing should not be a surprise really. Um, we are building this um, building at a very busy intersection between Concourse C and Concourse D and we need to make sh absolutely sure that it is safe. We need to make sure that the work can get done and obviously that airport operations can continue the whole time we're building this over the next few years. So bringing a GCCM contractor on board was the key and then making good use of you know our time with them the whole time we've had them on board during design is really the mitigation strategy to get that complex phasing under control. That is my last slide. Um, thank you so much. Um, do you have any questions for me on the authorization or the project briefing? Awesome. Thank you so much. Questions from commissioners? Commissioner Hazagawa. Thank you for the presentation. Um, okay, so... I guess just on the highest level, is this project a part of SAMP? This project is not part of SAMP. This project is not a part of SAMP. 
No. Okay. And does it expand our airport's footprint at all, or is this all within an existing footprint? So it builds up. Mm. So it does add square footage. But the way this has been explained to me is it adds square footage, but it is addressing an underserved um, need that we have at the airport. Like we're woefully, you help me, Rick, because you might know this better than I do. I, no, I, I get it. We yeah. 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 So you're going up, not out. We're going up, not yep. out, but we are, you know, adding 17 or 18, you know, ADR, um, ADR spaces to address a deficiency as opposed to just you know adding them because we think someday we might need it okay and then uh going to slide 10 for the visual please where we're looking at the performance stairs and some of the amenities yeah. that are there um i'm just wondering i mean this is very amazon i i like it right but i'm <laughs> just wondering um if we thought about a uh, handrail down the middle to support people because like Amazon's employees are, you know, they're just going to average, uh, you know, younger to middle age and we're servicing people. Yeah. 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 Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. We do have one along, um, like <clears throat> the entry side on the, I'm going to just call it the right side for purposes yeah. of, you know, this slide. So we have one rail along there and then there's a glass, kind of wall on the other side but we could certainly take a look and see if we want to put any interim yeah, railings that, in there they're kind of like bleachers yeah it's, it seems like that i'm just wondering because safety's just got to be yeah paramount absolutely and we made them nice and wide yeah so you it's hard to see on this detail but there's actually an area where if somebody needed to walk with a roller bag, they can actually go behind someone that's, that's sitting. Yeah, I'm so, thinking of people, you know, moms talk, you know, they've got a backpack over one thing and they got something around their waist and they're holding on to kids yeah. and a rail would be important that somebody could be able to hold on to. Yeah, we'll take a look at it. Um, I'm also wondering if um, you could explain a little bit about what the Smart Bathroom Project is. <laughs> not a lot because it's not my project, but okay. they're putting a lot of um, basically information technology in there to help them um, understand when they need to be cleaned and how often they're being used to kind of track some of the use and there's a, um, a passenger facing component as well that will tell people you know that the um, red light green light system it's I think there's some of that but it's it's more sophisticated than that but happy to get some more details is that happening here they're doing a um, they're doing a demo of it here to test it out, which is why we're only doing expansion? open conduit in our projects because they're still testing it out, and we didn't want to go too far. Are they? Is that a part of this project? Just this the conduit for it, not the actual infrastructure or not the actual technology. They're vetting that out um, with a project right now in the airport, and then if that is something that's gonna move forward, um, then they'll go ahead and include our project as one of the ones that they would improve. And then I'm wondering if this facility or, or the restroom facilities um, are gonna be gender neutral as we've seen just, we just opened our yeah. first. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, we designed ours to be gendered, but they have the main, the main set of them that's on concourse level. 
they are gendered, but they can be easily converted to all gender if they need to be by removing a wall in between them. So we started out at the very beginning of the project intentionally saying, okay, we don't know exactly where the port's going to be on this by the time this project is done. So let's prepare for the future so that if these are going to be um, all gender at some point, all we have to do is um, take a wall down in between them. So they have the fully full length um, um, stalls already in them. And then what does the uh, family stall feature? Oh boy, the family stall should have, I say should because I don't have it right in front of me, um, but they should include a changing table and an and enough room, you know, for a family to be in there. And I believe we have those in both the gender men's and women's room right now. When, um, when parents go in there with a baby, what's the assumption that they do with the baby while they're in there using facilities? I'm sorry. What? Well, I mean, I just, I, I wonder because I'm interested in, as we're building, making sure that we have a functional airport. Of course. Not just a beautiful airport. When um, part of the benefit of getting to travel as commissioners is seeing, you know, best practices in other parts of the world. And one of the things that Japan features is a infant docking station. It looks a little bit like a high chair where you oh, can yeah. just physically place a baby while you're using the facilities. It's common sense, it's not a budget breaker, and it go, a little goes a really long way. And I would like to see these projects include infant docking stations. And I don't think I'd, um, any of our family I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's in our, that far, that's in our restroom standards yeah, right now. So no. yeah, we should definitely look into it. I think I've seen those at Ikea, I want to say. So <laughs> yeah, they're not budget breakers and, um, and they're incredibly helpful. One of the most stressful pieces about travel as a family and that, you know, that customer experience ribbon is that traveling with kids informs everything about where you're going to travel, when you're going to travel, how you're going to travel, what you're going to bring and you just don't have enough hands, and something like this um, has been incorporated into models across the world, but we still just don't offer those basic amenities for traveling parents here at SEA, and so I would love to see that. I'm hearing okay. you say that you can look into handrails and into infant docking stations. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about ADA accessibility and how that's been a in consideration? In the scoping of this project? Yeah, it has been something that we wanted to make sure worked for that performance there. Um, at, for an example, I don't think it probably is really well represented in the renderings, um, but there is, you know, a ramp that will allow people <coughs> to um, access that first row of that performance stair because we wanted to make sure that it was um, wheelchair friendly. We wanted to make sure that we had um, Sarah for service animals and that is included in the facility as well um, we've got you know all all of the spaces are intended to be easy to navigate um, that don't include a t necessitate a ton of wayfinding also um, we have a sensory room in the pro in the project um, for those with sensory issues it's um, close to the lookout on the third floor and adjacent to the interfaith um, prayer and meditation room. So we've got kind of a, 
a block of um, amenities that are really supposed to address any of the needs that a passenger might have. That's great. And then are there any um, moving walkways on the ground to help folks get from point A to point B expeditiously? There aren't in this. No, nope, okay. there are not. Was well, that what, a part of the consideration just decided against? Is it a space issue? Or? You know, I think um, the thinking is that we wanted to create an area that people would not move immediately through. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. intended to be a space that, you know, we are asking we are designing it so that it will bring folks through this area as they're mm -hmm. going down the concourse. Mm -hmm. So we really were focused on creating spaces where somebody might want to ling linger for a little while, have a bite, you know, um, and just kind of experience it as opposed to just moving right through it in a really fast fashion. And then um, back to traveling parents with small children, where do women have available available to them to breastfeed. We do have a nursing room in okay. this as well, yes. A nursing room? Mm -hmm. What does that feature? So the nursing room has comfortable seating. It has a, um, a changing table in it as well. It also has a sink so someone can, you know, wash up in there. It's um, in one of the quieter areas of the project. So it's not an overly large space, but it is a space where there's enough room for you if it's you and a couple kids, you know, so that you can sit down, relax, and um, do what you need to do to take care of your family. Okay, excellent. Does it feel industrial in there? Or is it a place no. where women can comfortably sit? No, it's time? pretty cozy in there. And um, we're also talking to Tommy Gregory in our art program about mm -hmm. locating some art in there as well to bring just an extra, you know, to elevate that space a little bit more. Okay. And then back to the um, gender neutral restrooms, you said that if they needed to be converted in the future, then they could be? Yes. Okay. When? How does that assessment happen on the Port of Seattle side? When do we? I might be the best person to say that. I think part that. of that has to do with compliance, right? First, there's compliance, and then. Yeah. And then. So you know, the, one of the things uh, about the gender neutral restrooms. And, Is your mic on? Oh. And the smart restrooms go. was future proofing. So you know, this was designed years ago. You know, commissioners changed, port policies changed, and so we wanted to make sure that we thought ahead of time to how things might shift and our values might shift or our directions might shift. And then we could easily knock down a wall and do it. Or we could easily, you know, we have the conduit in, so it's just plug and play. Then you could have the red light, green light systems or whatever. So it was really trying to think ahead to how things might change so we could quickly, you know, answer to, to what the direction of the port wants to be. Okay. And then um, about the energy saving component, does that include water saving at, in, with the facilities with the Russian facilities we do have um, low flow um, toilets yeah. in the project we're targeting for lead version 4 silver and they have a lot of prerequisites um, specifically to address water use so we absolutely have to address those and have a water saving project in order to get lead certification. And then you also use the, I think you use the term fossil fuel free, forgive me if that's You said it faster than I did. Um, so. <laughs> I'm wondering if you're considering um, uh, natural gas to be a fossil fuel. No. Okay. No. So. We're not. And so our tenants, it will be using our tenants are also going to be using all electric um, for their heating and their food. I'm sorry, food. clarification, you do not consider natural gas a fossil fuel, or you do? And I, well, 
whether or not I consider it, but we're not using it in the project. So you're not using natural gas <laughs> Correct. as in yeah. this project. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> of course. Okay, no further questions. Any other questions from commissioners? Co yeah, Commissioner Feldman. Uh, thank you for the presentation yeah. and uh, <clears throat> pardon my voice, but you know, I've had the pleasure of remodeling three houses and uh, you know, knocking down walls and feeling like I'm being clever. But th this transformation is extraordinary, you know, and uh, to see this kind of space just come out of nowhere is, is, is really brilliant. And I had a couple of friends recently go through the airport and hadn't been there a while, and just the, the experience they said is like night and day, and something like this is really incredibly impressive. So I, I just want to express my appreciation for that and all the thoughtfulness that went into it. One of the things, of course, that's of great interest to me is, of course, the environmental sustainability issues, and um, and the fact that we have this, you know, framework that I I I was very happy to see that you know the staff have just like embraced this idea of what's the next more clever thing we can do, and um, I, I was trying for many years to try to get solar cells on the roof of an airport building, and was always told that the reflectiveness would make it um, not safe. And so something clever happened. And I was just wondering, do you know uh, how we were able to pull it off this time? Yeah, well, um, luckily we have a really great design team <laughs> in Miller Hole and Woods Baggett. And what we did was, that's part of the reasons you see kind of that angle to the roof. So it was about creating it at a proper angle and tilting it and having um, just the right location so that we're not gonna have any issues with the FAA. It is also up high enough so that, you know, planes going through won't get that, you know, right in their faces, so to speak. So it was a lot of really careful detailing on the designs that allowed it um, to happen. And, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we're doing for the first time here. And there's, you know, a lot of things that we've had to work out in detail. And there's a lot of maintenance that's going to, you know, ultimately need to be understood and take on. But we're pretty stoked that it's in the project, too. And, and do you have a, uh, an estimate of the amount of electricity it will generate? You know, the way we've been talking about it is a percentage. So this is going to generate a somewhere between like 12 and 13% of the energy that's needed for the building. And when we evaluated that, you know, and when we talked to, you know, the commission's um, committee on this, it was, it was more about, you know, we're taking that load off of the airport's grid, even if it's not all of it, you know, we are, it is, there's value in having a renewable source um, for the project, even if it's not able to do every single bit of energy that the project needs. But it's a tremendous building. I mean, 12, 13% is, is not it's trivial. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for the presentation. I just have a, um, a couple questions. Um, one, I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit more to the current the current tenant packages, um, and if there were any sort of challenges in the relocation and design process for those tenants, um, and what what is, what is in that those packages? What does that support? Yeah. Like? So, 
there's um, relocating the TSA as the main tenant of the building. So they've got several different functions in the building and we've been working very closely with them over the last several years to identify ex existing spaces in um, the terminal elsewhere we, where we can tuck them in. One of the major ones we're moving is called the um, OSR room, which is where they do the remote screening for our baggage. So that's a highly complex um, system that's kind of the brains of our baggage system. So we're going to move that. So that's one of the key relocations that um, we're taking on. But the ADR tenants, um, a lot of them have storage cages um, in the bowels of the existing C1 building. And we've been working with them really closely to kind of hopscotch them around to different locations for their storage as we're driving um, what are called micro piles into the foundation. So um, we've had a wonderful partnership with them and there's been a lot of teamwork involved in, you know, moving their stored items, their inventory, so that we can go do some work and then, you know, move it back. And that'll, that'll go on for several more months um, while we're finishing up that first structural package of work. And then um, there are a few tenants on the concourse level that um, one is being relocated and a few of them that are right along that perimeter where um, the face of the existing C1 building is, um, those are going to close. We're trying to wait until the last possible minute to need to close those, but early next year those will need to close and it's my understanding they'll have an opportunity to um, bid on the new facilities that we're going to be building. That's, that's really helpful to, to know that it's a, a collaborative process and that they're included in those discussions. It has early. been. We understand that what we're doing is pretty impactful for folks that are just trying to have a business out here. And we go in and say that we need to, you know, build a structural foundation in their storage area. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, is, that is really helpful. And then my last question is, I think this is uh, beneficial to the public, is there a transparent breakdown of um, of the but like the entire budget where these fundings are coming from how much of it is from operational funds and and is there a, a breakdown of that out there I think some I of that information this. is available on the public page but we'll probably have more of that information once we do finalize that contract number with um, Turner construction here in the next couple months then we'll be able to truly say these are the true costs, this is the true schedule, this is what our contract says with them. That's, that's really helpful, thank you. That concludes my questions. Great, thank you. Um, just have uh, quick questions for you. I see here and notice that the MI vote on this project was capped at 340, so given the delta between what we expected to cost and what the MI vote has authorized, do we need to go back for another MI vote or? Yeah, I believe so, we will. Okay. And at what point do we do that? <coughs> say, say at, at what point does that happen? Um, that would go after investment committee. Um, I, I could get that date for you I, off the top of my head. I, okay. I, I can't tell you. Okay. Um, and then secondly, um, are there power packs involved with the solar roof? I'm sorry, are there what? Power packs, storage, batteries. There is some storage involved. Yeah, it's not it's not being stored to be used like elsewhere in the terminal. 
it's more that there's a um, there's storage for a distribution system. So it's not yeah. it's not like we're just collecting that collecting that power and then just hanging on to it for when we needed it. It's meant to be used. And why why aren't we doing that? The <laughs> the project is uh, scope was to create build the PV panels and use it for the building. So I would have to talk to some other folks to see if there is a project that would be for distribution to the rest of the airport. Well, it's not even just the rest of the airport, but peak usage of electricity is in the evenings when there's no sun, right? So having that storage capacity to use at peak hours would actually, I think, help increase the, the, the utilization of those panels beyond the 10 15% that was just cited. So I, w I would encourage you to look into that. Yeah, we could uh, certainly do those studies. You know, at, at only 13 to 15% of the power the building needs, I wouldn't think there would be too often excess electricity to, to bank anywhere, but it's worth the studies. And they may have done that. We could look into yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I just think, I mean, 10-15% is great, but if you could push it higher by putting in some battery packs and oh, storing it yeah. for peak hours, that would be ideal. So it would be great. And and that and that and that electricity is being used for what purpose? Heating, everything, anything in the building? Everything. Yeah, we don't have any natural gas servicing yeah. the project. So. Okay. Yeah, that would be great. I would love for us to look into that further. Okay. <laughs> I got a second, so now you have to do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, all right, that concludes uh, questions. Oh, Commissioner Feldman has one. The has the last because word because you brought up the. Wasn't this building originally part of the RNG project? It did isn't this plumbed for uh, natural gas? I think the existing C1 building, so the building that's there, um, utilized the ex utilized the natural gas. So we're you know, well, we have a long-term contract for RNG. So this building won't be using that at all. Is that the not as part of the C concourse expansion project? not set up for it. Great. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved. Second. All right. There was a motion made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasakawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. All right. The motion passes. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Thank you. And Executive Director Metric will introduce it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is agenda item 10B, sound installation program briefing and authorization for the Executive Director to advertise, award, and execute a major public works contract, include a project labor agreement, and authorize construction of phase two of the apartment program with previously authorized funds and a total program cost of $133,515,000. Commissioners, today we'll present an update on the SEA sound insulation programs. Great progress has been made to complete the commission requested and authorized acceleration of our insulation programs by the end of 2026. Staff are here today to brief you on those efforts and the status of each program that is underway. We're working hard to ensure that the deadlines are being met and that we are doing everything we can as quickly as we can to deliver noise reduction benefits to our communities. 
Staff will also share updates on our advocacy efforts, efforts at the federal level through the 2023 Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Bill and other vehicles on priority aircraft noise and emissions policies. And finally, we're getting ready to procure the contracting for the sound insulation of the second phase of our apartment building insulation program. Staff are here to request authorization to advertise, award, and execute a public works contract, including a project labor agreement to begin work on four different eligible apartment complexes, <coughs> totaling 105 units. Steve St. Louis, Sound Insulation Program Manager, and Judy Kinsey. Julie Kinsey, Noise Program Sound Insulation Manager, will be our presenters today, along with Eric Shinfield, Senior Manager of Federal Government Relations, to talk about the federal policy side of things. So I think I'm going to turn over to Steve, I think, Julie. Is that we'll start there? Yeah. Steve is with us. Uh, Steve yes, is hi. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thanks, Executive Director Metric, and good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, I'm Steve St. Louis, uh, Program Manager for the Sound Insulation Program. Uh, next slide, please. Today, our team will be providing a status update on the entire program to include funding, risks, and next steps. Next slide, please. Next slide. In 2020, the commission passed a motion to accelerate the sound insulation program to provide sound insulation to eligible properties within the FAA noise remedy boundary. The goal of the motion is to complete the current program by the end of 2026. As Executive Director Metric mentioned, we are on target to meet this goal. The scope of work includes the installation of sound transmission class rated windows, solid core doors, storm doors, positive air ventilation, and any ancillary work needed to reduce noise or meet code. Next slide, please. This sound insulation program location slide map really highlights the breadth of the sound insulation program, showing all the properties where sound insulation work is occurring within the airport community. Next slide, please. Our project team is about to provide you with an update on the history of the sound insulation, sound insulation at SEA, the progress being made with uh, the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion being incorporated into our program, updates on each of the uh, programs for single-family homes, the condominiums, the apartments, places of worship, and the South Approach uh, Transition Zone and the improvements being made uh, to the subordination agreement process. And now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Julie Kinsey, uh, to kick off the uh, status update. Julie? Thank you, Steve. There we go. You're right. It goes to work that way. Uh, next slide, please. So, uh, commissioners, we wanted to provide you with a brief history of the sound insulation program. Uh, SEA has one of the longest established sound insulation programs and has always been strongly supported um, since its inception in 1985. We've invested over $300 million in the sound insulation program, uh, as well as sound insulation of five condominium complexes with over 246 units. And we've partnered with education. We've provided over $14 million for Highline College to sound insulate 14 buildings. 
and through our partnership with the FAA of $100 million for sound insulation of the Highline School Districts. We've currently completed 10 of 15, and with the most recent bond measure passing, the school district is in early design for the 11th school, which is going to be the Pacific Middle School. That is slated to open for the school term of 2027. Next slide, please. Uh, as part of our program design, we've worked extensively with the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And this includes the Equity Index. Uh, this work was recently highlighted in a blog post by OEDI and our partnership with them. So one of the items that we've done as part of the acceleration is we did a refresh of our website. And that QR code takes you to the, to the website. And really what this is designed to do is create a central hub of information for the, the public on all things sound insulation. So you can find our blogs, our videos, uh, and all information regarding sound insulation. So one of the critical parts of our website is actually the use of the Google Translate feature. And so what this project did was it actually made our information available to over 109 languages, really making the program that much more accessible. And so other things that we've done, we've also worked with the Burien, uh, City of Burien to be a part of their Burien Block Party, which was very successful. Next slide, please. So for single family homes, this has been a constant in the program since 1985. And as we entered into the acceleration phase, there were identified 140 potentially eligible homes. And at, uh, in 2020, when the commission passed the acceleration mo uh, motion, there were 38 of those that had applied. Since then, with our expanded outreach efforts, we've grown this to 77. Uh, what that entailed was we've expanded to a quarterly outreach strategy. We utilize a variety of letters, multi-language letters, multi-language postcards to encourage people to apply for the program. So over the course of the last two years, we've completed sound insulation of 23 homes. Uh, we had two homes that current previously went through acoustic testing, and we anticipate continuing to to complete roughly 10 homes per year based upon participation. Uh, currently, there are 26 owners that uh, have placed their projects on hold, and that's for a variety of reasons. Uh, some owners that have lived there for a long time are selling their homes. Um, others have repair work that they need to do, or they have personal health reasons that they are not wanting to have us come into their home. So one of the things that staff does is we regularly monitor our on-hold list to see if when the homes sell so that we can reach out to the, the new owner. It's generally new owners that are the most likely to apply for the program. And we do regular outreach even to all of the owners on that on-hold list just to see if their situation has changed. Uh, next slide, please. Condominium. So we have some kind of fresh slides here for you. So we at long last are very proud to announce that in Q2 of this year, we did complete the 28 condominiums at the Villa Enzian complex in Des Moines. Uh, what you can see on your pictures here is the aesthetic improvement of the building now with having the new windows, the lovely trim. And there on the lift, that was one of the, of the last few windows that was going into uh, an owner's home. And 
So not only have we been able to provide just a beautiful aesthetic for the homeowners, more, more importantly is the acoustic benefit. And what we realized on this particular project was anywhere from a 9 to a 13 decibel improvement based on our post-testing results. Next slide, please. For apartments, um, of the 18 potentially eligible complexes, 14 of the 18 have applied. Uh, two actually did decline acoustic testing after their briefing. So 11 of the 12 that were tested were found to be eligible. Um, one did decline after acoustic testing. And we have 10 that are actively participating. So our uh, project plan calls for, we have two phases. Uh, phase one is currently in a pre-award status, and Steve will provide you more information on that. The design for phase two, which is four buildings with 105 units, is actively underway. What you'll see up on the screen, these are actually photos from two of the apartment buildings that are in phase two, that are in the city of Burien. And what we also included for you is a picture of the digital design tool that our design team is leveraging. What this allows us to do is take a three-dimensional scan, both inside and outside of the apartments, and that provides the dimensional information that's needed. So what this tool has enabled us to do is not only accelerate the pace of the design, it has also made them incredibly accurate, that mm -hmm. you can uh, verify true uh, length and width for your designs. Next slide, please. For places of worship, so we started with seven properties uh, that we did outreach to. We there were five of seven that applied. Uh, four did test eligible, one was not. And we have three that are actively participating in the, the program. Designs are actively underway, and we will be coming back to commission at a later date for construction authorization on places of worship. Next slide, please. And now I'd like to turn it back over to Steve. He is going to talk to you about our program schedule. Thanks, Julie. Uh, so as Julie mentioned, this is our uh, accelerated program schedule for the entire program. Um, phase one construction of the apartment program is about to commence. Uh, phase two design is approaching 90% completion uh, with an anticipated bid opening in quarter one, 2024. And there will be a phase, likely be a phase three uh, to the apartment program, and that's anticipated to commence in the second quarter of 2024. The single-family home program is continuous. As Julie mentioned, it's been around since 1985, and it's pretty much ongoing design and construction being completed concurrently each year. So that's why this schedule slide really shows uh, the single-family homes going from start to basically start to the end of this um, duration. And then the Place of the Worship program, right now we're approaching 60% design and anticipating a bid opening in the second quarter of 2024. All the programs are currently on target to complete uh, by the end of 2026 or sooner. And I will turn it back over to Julie for the next slide. Thank you, Steve. For our approach transition zone, we currently have one apartment building and one single family home that would be potentially eligible. Uh, we have reached out to the apartment building. Uh, they have actually are potentially eligible for both programs. 
and after briefing they have uh, opted not to participate in either of the the sound insulation or the acquisition program at this time as the situation changes we would be coming back to commission at a later date for that next slide please now we'd like to provide you with a brief update on subordinations so as part of the sound insulation program uh, one of the documents that we are required to get is the abrogation easement and this is to be in compliance with Washington state law in the use of public funds and so when a home has a loan on it we have to then create a subordination with the lender and what that enables is for the abrogation easement to remain in place on the, the home so this has always been a part of our process and as Commission is well aware this became much more challenging through the pandemic and it did create quite a backlog so through the extensive work of our consultants and port staff we were able to bring that down to an average of only four four months and I'm actually very pleased today to let the Commission know that we actually have no homes that have outstanding subordinations on either our single family our condo our apartment or our places of worship so we have brought that number down to, to zero one of the enhancements that we've made out of this that we continue that has been a, a delight for homeowners is as part of that navigation easement process sometimes it can be very hard to find a notary and the port has notaries and so we have continued the practice for owners that are within the local area that we will uh, create an appointment and have the navigation easement signed by the port notary next slide please So the, these next several slides are going to be presented to you by Eric Schinfeld. He's the senior manager of federal and international government relations regarding the FAA authorization and our advocacy work. Never Eric. heard of him. <laughs> That's right. Well, good afternoon, commissioners. Again, Eric Schinfeld, senior manager of federal government relations. We thought this was an important part of today's briefing because the sound uh, program is doing such great work, but of course it is bound by current federal law. That insulation can only take place within that 65 DNL noise contour. That insulation can only happen one time. And so we've been working very hard with our partners, uh, both in Congress and also our local community partners, to see what we can do to change some of those policies to create even more opportunities to do this important sound insulation work. Uh, the main vehicle for that right now is the 2023 FAA reauthorization bill. Uh, this is a bill that happens once about every five years or so. It sets all of the FAA policies, programs, and funding. Uh, and so this is the year where if we want to make major changes in FAA noise policy, this is the year to do that. Uh, we are currently in the process now where the House has actually finished passing its bill. Uh, so the House has drafted and voted uh, successfully uh, with a huge margin, 351 to 69, uh, in favor of their bill. Uh, the Senate, unfortunately, is in an indefinite postponement uh, over a controversy related to pilot training hours, commercial pilot training hours, which is very unfortunate. But hopefully they will resolve that at some point in the near future. The House and Senate must both pass their bills, uh, compromise version of those bills, and then pass it by September 30th of this year, or else they will need to pass an extension. And that extension hopefully would be a short extension. But just to give you some context, the last FAA bill had six extensions before it was successfully passed. So uh, we will see how it goes. Next slide, please. 
so I mentioned our advocacy work. Uh, we've been working with uh, through the START Federal Policy Working Group, uh, our committee with the six airport cities, uh, to identify uh, what we identified as seven policies to advocate for to address some of these issues related not only to aircraft noise, but also aircraft emissions. And Commissioner Mohammed was one of the uh, individuals who traveled with us at the end of April to advocate collectively with our city partners for the inclusion of these seven policies in the FAA bill. And I'm really pleased to say that four of those seven policies are in either the House or the Senate bill. So uh, obviously that trip to DC was worth it. We're really pleased about that. You'll see those uh, bolded there on the list of seven. Uh, the bold ones are the ones in the House uh, or the Senate bill. And the ones that are bolded, the one that is bolded and in italics is in both the House and the Senate bill. And you'll notice that that one is the deadline for FAA action. Uh, the way we wrote this policy was that the FAA will have to create a community advisory group with airlines, airports, airport communities, uh, several federal agencies to advise on potential changes to that 65 DNL noise metric. Uh, within one year, they must uh, complete those recommendations, and then six months after that one year, the FAA will have to make a final decision after consulting with Congress. So uh, really exciting that we were able to get that policy into both the House and the Senate bills. Obviously, that means it has a great chance of success uh, once the FAA bill hopefully eventually does pass. Uh, you'll see others there uh, of particular importance as well as we continue work, including a study uh, uh, authored by Representative Smith on ultrafine particulates from aircraft. So we are still working. Of course, four is great, but seven is better. And so we are working to include additional policies in the House and the Senate bills. Uh, we feel very optimistic that that uh, secondary insulation legislation, which would allow for additional FAA and uh, airport investment in packages, noise packages that have quote unquote failed, uh, we do feel optimistic that will be included in the Senate bill. Uh, upon Senate committee markup, Senate Commerce Committee markup, uh, if and when that does happen. So uh, we think that five and maybe even six of these policies are, are possible in the final bill. Next slide. Really quickly, uh, three other slides I'll go run through. Uh, number one, there are a lot of other great noise and emissions policies in the FAA bill in either the House or the Senate bill. Just want to acknowledge that. We don't have to go through those now, but uh, this is a topic of great interest to members of Congress from across the country, and I think we'll see a lot of progress once this FAA, FAA bill gets passed. Uh, we also heard mention earlier from Erica that both the House and the Senate versions include language to increase flexibility around the, the future of North SeaTac Park. So we're very grateful to Senator Cantwell, Representative Larson, and Representative Smith for that language in both the House and the Senate bills. Next slide. Beyond the FAA bill, I, I want to call out really quickly appropriations and grants. Uh, thanks to Senator Murray, uh, the Senate Appropriations Committee just passed their Transportation Appropriations Bill for FY24, which may or may not begin on October 1st of this year. Uh, and that bill, thanks to Senator Murray, includes language that would allow for FAA funding to be used for a study of failed insulation. Now, this would not fund secondary insulation, which is the, the language that we're working on in the FAA bill, but it would allow us to use federal dollars to get a better sense of the actual scope of the problem. Go out, survey people, do work to, to really understand uh, how many homes and buildings might actually have failed insulation. So we appreciate Senator Murray's support on that. Uh, and then I want to call out Aviation Finance for the amazing work they're doing to secure federal funds. Uh, most recently in June, $5 million for places of worship. Robert Giacopetti here, uh, all nice and tan, back from his vacation. Uh, we actually have started calling him the baker uh, because of how much dough he's bringing to the airport for this program. So uh, it is 
uh, is really, really important. And I know uh, getting these federal dollars and more federal grants is a top priority for commissioners. So we're really delivering on that work and, and really all the credit to Robert. And then finally, last slide, uh, I do want to say that, you know, we've been working through the legislative process on potential changes to that 65 DNL metric. Uh, we met with the FAA when we were uh, with our start fly-in in April. Uh, and we said, hey, we really want you to do a public comment period about the 65 DNL metric. Uh, they said, well, we're thinking about it. We're not sure. Uh, and then two days later, they announced this public comment period on the metric. So uh, all credits to Commissioner uh, Mohammed for that. Uh, so uh, you can check it out. It's at faa.gov slash noise policy review. And they are really, really explicitly asking for how should the 65 DNL metric change. Uh, there are a number of options they're looking at. Is that keeping the 65 DNL but changing the algorithm, weighting different things differently? Is that switching to a different metric or metrics? Is that using the 65 DNL in, in uh, combination with other metrics? Uh, so they're, they're really looking at a lot of different options. And, and of course, this has implications not only for uh, who's eligible for sound insulation, but also for NEPA review and land use compatibility planning and other things. So it's really exciting. Uh, and again, I think this, this process they're doing right now is very complementary with an E uh, to the policies that we're pushing with, with the FAA bill to actually have a deadline once this work is complete, a deadline for actual implementation of this work. Uh, this was going to be due on uh, July 31st, the, the end of this comment period. Uh, a number of stakeholders, uh, not us, advocated for the deadline to be extended. Uh, so the new deadline is actually September 29th, not September 30th. Uh, we have a first draft already of a joint letter with our six airport cities. Uh, we're working that through the process. Obviously, you'll see that uh, very soon. And, and we expect to be ready uh, probably next month with a draft for you to look at uh, of what we will comment on in terms of what we think the FAA should do related to the 65 DNL. So that's my quick update there. And thanks for the time. Thank you, Eric. So for our local sound insulation program as it relates to the failed packages, uh, as we've previously shared, we do plan to incorporate into our upcoming Part 150 a failed um, packages study. Whether that will be part of grant funding or private or funded by the, the port itself remains to, to be seen. Uh, the state law did allow for us to be able to pursue reinsulation, and as previously noted, there are not yet uh, grant funds allowable for this. And the, our goal of doing this study through the Part 150 is to be able to kind of create a synchrony with many of these other efforts that are on that are ongoing not only for those homes that are pre-93 but also potentially for post-93 and as stated we currently do not have a funding source for that uh, and so that does become one of the things as part of our part 150 study that we hope to identify um, I can also share that we uh, we do have our consultant on board for the part 150 and we will be holding a kickoff internal kickoff meeting with them starting next month with technical data uh, analysis beginning later in the year and then public outreach to begin shortly thereafter. So much more to come with, with our Part 150 study and reinstallation. So next, I'd like to, we can go to the next slide. I'd like to hand it back over to uh, Steve and Robert. They're gonna talk about our program funding, estimates, and risks. Steve, are you talking to this slide? Or? Well, I'll um, talk to this. Yeah. Go ahead, Robert, if yeah. you just want to talk briefly about that. Sure. 
Yeah, Robert Giacopetti, the Aviation uh, Grants Program Manager. And I want to put some numbers to what you've seen uh, that Julie's presented. So uh, before we get started, uh, just want to highlight that prior practice was that we, this program was performed based on the availability of grants. And with your initiative, that has been discontinued, and we are moving forward, grants or no grants, uh, with a commitment from the airlines to fund uh, what has not been grant funded. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, that, that being said, <laughs> we've gotten plenty of grants uh, to, since the, uh, since the uh, commission's initiative uh, was kicked off uh, to pay for everything that we've done today or, or everything that's eligible today. So there's two charts here. The top is the cash flow and the funding plan is beneath that. Um, since we presented last, uh, I think probably the most significant difference on the cash flow is if you look at the apartment sound insulation program, um, what was presented by Steve and Julie earlier was that 10 of the apartments would be participating, which would leave 18 that are not, at least not currently. And so you can see on the beyond 2028, the $50 million uh, that is kind of pushed forward outside of the, the five-year horizon. Um, those apartment complexes are eligible, so they may come back into the program, but for now they're not. And so I think that is probably the most significant change you're seeing on the cash flow plan. Going below, we're tra well, translating that into the funding plan. Uh, to date, uh, since 2020, we have received $35 million in grants. Uh, so we're averaging $7 million a year uh, on grants. Uh, we're assuming $10 million a year based on this plan of finance. Um, given the programming the FAA has done, uh, those figures could go as high as 20 per year. So it fluctuates based on the availability of grants. So, uh, so, so with the existing grants plus our estimated future grants, looking at about 85, 86 million dollars in grants. Uh, we have approximately seven million dollars in reinvested funds to use for the program. Uh, those are funds that were um, gained through the sale of assets of previously uh, funded properties. And so that leaves 93 million dollars uh, for the airline rate base that we would bond. And so the last time uh, we presented this uh, funding plan to you, um, we were concerned that, again, without the grants, um, that we would, you know, we would have a funding concern and we are prepared to use uh, commercial paper for interim financing. So for the time being, we do not need to use commercial paper. So, but we have the capacity in the future um, beyond 2025 uh, should we need it. But I think through 2024, we have sufficient grants to fund uh, everything that's eligible. Next slide. And I'll hand it back to Steve. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for that update. On this slide, I'm going to provide an update on a couple of our program risks. Um, one of them being the con contractor availability, uh, especially locally, to do this specialty type of work continues to be a challenge for the program. Phase one bid opening, we, we just completed that um, a short while ago. We had three bidders, two of which were out-of-state contractors. 
So part of our mitigation plan is to continue doing uh, extensive outreach within the community um, and have informational sessions for the contractors to come hear about the program and really promote the program here locally and, and also nationally to make sure that we're getting a, a good uh, solid bidding pool. Uh, another one is the lead times for these specialty type of products, uh, such as the sound transmission class win rated windows. Uh, it continues to be unpredictable. Uh, it's a volatile market right now, uh, varying anywhere from 8 to 16 weeks on delivery times. So for that, we're working closely with the contractor to place window early, window orders early and monitor the delivery schedule closely as uh, um, time comes to uh, you know expect those deliveries on site. Next slide, please. And for next steps, uh, program next steps here, uh, we're going to continue testing and planning uh, eligible properties for the program. We'll continue with extensive owner outreach, I'll continue construction uh, single-family homes at an accelerated pace to get completed. And also, as part of this briefing, we've, we've talked about phase two on the apartment program. I am requesting construction authorization for phase two of the apartment program, which consists of four apartment complexes with uh, 105 units. Uh, next slide. And as part of this briefing is this authorization. Next slide, please. Uh, yeah, I am seeking construction authorization for phase two. Um, the apartment program is the critical path to the entire all, of all the programs, um, I anticipate phase two to be completed in quarter three of 2025, and then I'll be returning to commission for a phase three construction authorization at a later date, uh, should that come to fruition. And next slide, that will do it for our presentation today. I'm going to see if anybody has any questions, or um, I know we. I also requested an inaction there as well. Great. Uh, just a point of clarification here. I, I noticed that there's no dollar amount attached to this voting item. So what are we voting on? Just an authorization? Yeah, it's just authorization for executive director to execute contract, uh, the labor agreement, et cetera. The previous authorization for phase one um, provided enough sufficient funds to fund phase two. Got it. And OK, got it. That makes sense to me. Um, uh, I have one quick question, and then I'll kick it over to my colleagues. Um, you know, it, it, I think one of the things that we hear um, regularly, I would say, uh, about the sound mitigation program is this issue of failed packages. Um, and quite frankly, taking an, taking an inventory of failed packages, potentially, right? Those that may have received reinforcement uh, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, but have failed. I think one of the challenges that we have is the fact that there isn't a documentation of those, you know, said packages. Um, there, are, there are parties who claim to have those numbers but won't share them with us. But, you know, I think one of the questions that is proposed here in your presentation with regards to that issue in particular is who's going to fund it, right? Because I think it's clear that it's not something that, at least for now, is permissible uh, for FAA funding. Uh, we, I think we have, as, as commissioners, have contemplated just funding it on our own. But I also know that we've had conversations with state legislators like Tina Orwell and Karen, Senator Karen Kaiser about potentially getting the state to fund 
a study on failed mitigation packages. I'm wondering, and I realize that our state uh, lead is not with us anymore and we're in the midst of hiring this, and I don't know if Pierce is here, but I'm wondering if anyone can speak to uh, what progress we are making or have made or intend to make on this front in terms of partnering with the state legislature on this? So just very briefly, I'll say, first of all, huh? Hello. Uh, just briefly, I'll say, first of all, uh, again, to thank Representative Orwall for her great partnership. She actually flew with us to DC, which was amazing to have her perspective. And she's really been working very collaboratively with us to figure out how we uh, make progress on a lot of these fronts. We have not been successful uh, at getting the state to do a, a cost share uh, I, we've talked about both the secondary uh, issue as well as, you know, I know there's a lot of desire for the state to uh, fund outside of the 65 DNL. Uh, and one of our positions has been, uh, is there state funding to do that if that was uh, something we wanted to do? So uh, no progress there. We'll continue to be part of the conversations. And uh, like you said, excited to get our new state GR person on board, hopefully as soon as next month to start to work on these issues. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, open up to my colleagues. Commissioner uh, Mohammed. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you all for um, the presentation. And um, th this issue is one issue that requires really both um, state participation, federal participation, and port participation. And it really does take a collaborative effort to address many of the sound installation issues related issues related to communities near the airport. And um, I will say I'm very proud of the work that has happened, um, that is happening and has happened even before I, I've joined the commission. And it continues to be a challenge. And I think we've made um, a great progress in this last year. I really appreciated uh, being able to go on that DC trip. There was a lot of great conversations that came out of it and actions as well um, with uh, the FAA reauthorization bill to have some seven of our priority areas, having four of them included in that that um, that bill, is 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 great for all of us. Um, and so I, I just wanted to to say that. Um, and I like how Eric you you defined Robert as as our what did you call him the dough? <laughs> Bringing in the dough, the baker is 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 necessary. I have to get you a tag that says that or something along those lines. A hat that says that <laughs> would be great. Um, this, this is, it's, it's really, really an, an expensive program. Um, I know that I appreciated, uh, Commissioner Cho's question on what was, what's the exact dollar amount that we're voting on today. That was a great question. I was, I was going to ask a similar sort of question too. And even out of the $30 million that we've, $300 million in, um, that we've allocated to this program, um, it would be helpful to have like how much of that money have we spent since 1985? What is left? How, how much of it are we looking for additional grants? Um, Robert, I don't know if you. Yeah, uh, well, what's on this cash flow on, on this slide that was presented earlier? That 13 point. Is your mic on? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. What's on the, the slide is, is since 2020, which is the 13.8. And I'd have to get back to you with the history going back to 1985. Um, we, can, we can certainly follow up. Um, but uh, but your, your question was regarding 
Yeah, that, that's helpful. It, yeah. it would be helpful because, and this is the other thing, on page 11, um, you guys mentioned that there are um, folks who opt out of the, this program. My first question is, um, are there reasons why folks are opting out? Do we, do we capture that? Do we ask that question? And then two, um, I'm sure in our projections, we are um, including how much it would cost to um, insulate their homes. Is that included in the $30 million? But if you could answer my first question, that would be helpful. Are, yes. are, what's the reason they're opting out? Yeah, thank you for that, that question. Um, you know, real estate, is it's interesting. Uh, you know, you would certainly, and when you think about our, our program as a whole, so oftentimes I explain to people, everyone within specifically single-family homes has been telling us no for 30 years because the homes that, that remain eligible were eligible in 1985. And so, you know, it, there you have situations where there's health issues. And so certainly during COVID, we ran into that. We still have some homeowners that are just, they have elder, they maybe have elderly folks, they are immune compromised, they, they don't want us in. Um, so you also have, in some instances, it's landlords that um, actually, ironically, their tenants don't want to have us in. And so we've had um, rental properties that have, have pushed us back for that reason. Um, we've had instances in which just over the course of time there was interest, but you know, one particular home had a tree fall on it and they have to fix the roof and a number of other things before the home would actually be eligible, again, for sound insulation. So one of the things that we try not to do is, is sort of put you know, our spin on why somebody doesn't. Our goal is just to be the best educators that we can be and try to make the program as easy and accessible to, to access as possible, make sure that people have all of the information so that they can make an informed decision. Um, sometimes with real estate, people have other plans that they just haven't included us in, and that oftentimes goes into why they're declining the program in the moment, but then can come back in several years later. And then, so if it's condominiums or apartments, I'm, I'm assuming that we're obviously um, putting aside a lot of chunk of money to, to insulate that to begin with. So then what happens when that condominium or apartment owner decides they don't want to use they don't want to move forward, then do we move forward with some of the, the places of worship or um, the schools? What happens next? Yeah, thank you for that question. In all honesty, that was really the, from our standpoint, from a planning standpoint, the benefit of the acceleration is we, we don't, you've given us the access to the funds to be able to do it. So whoever wants to participate, the, you, you've essentially, we can go for it. We don't have to prioritize. So that's why you see both single family and condominiums and places of worship. So it's really just as we're able to get um, individuals and entities to apply, we get them acoustically tested, we get documents in, in order, and then we proceed to the design. So it's not that, so funding is certainly not an issue why anyone is maybe on the back burner, if, if that's your question. Yeah. Everything is moving forward um, expeditiously. So there's no there's no internal holds that are because of funding, and that's really largely to the work of the commission and also from Robert and finance team of just not having that constraint on us. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. And Commissioner Cho asked this earlier. Um, it, it is true. One of the, the, the biggest sort of concerns that we hear from constituents is previously insulated homes having issues today and them wanting to be assessed. And I 
I just want to thank you all for including that assessment process and being thorough to include that in, in the, um, the Part 150 study. Um, I think that is the right thing to do is to have an actual strategy and a plan to identify who, who those individuals are and what our response will, will look like. Um, my question is, now that we have um, secured a consultant, and I think there's a coordinator that's been hired for, for that position, is there any timelines that you guys will be able to share with us as a commission on as to when um, some of that, that strategy will be daylighted? Yeah, so one of the, the next steps now that we have them on, on board is to, to finalize the scope um, for the FAA approval. And as part of that, and that's where out of this kickoff meeting, they would start working on then around the timing of different, of different items. So understand that one of the things, and this is why we wanted Eric to present all of the advocacy work that's going on, is one of the things we want to also do is make sure, sure coming out of the study that we are aware of any direction that the FAA might be going in terms of what would be eligible. So that that way we're, we're capturing it holistically so that we're not maybe having to go back to people at different, at different times. And so we want to be very thoughtful about it and understanding that because we are one of the longest standing programs dating back to 85, many of the concerns of our constituents might be different than in other airports. And that is certainly why we have been pushing much more at SEA, knowing that we have some of the more um, longer standing packages than maybe other airports that have newer programs. My last question is just a, a quick follow-up and then I'll pass it. Um, so the, the Part 150 study can take you know, a long time to do. Is there a plan to accelerate that part of the work? That, that is a difficult one to, to answer. So I would say it does not, it is not necessarily dependent upon the full completion of the, the Part 150. And certainly Sarah can answer more around the timing. But again, there's kind of the desire to make sure that we're in sync with the FAA. Sarah? Uh, good afternoon, Sarah Cox, Aviation Environment and Sustainability Director. Is your mic on? It is. I think yes. that mic is yes. low. Is. That mic is not working very well. Quite. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, with respect to the schedule, uh, a lot of that, the schedule um, will be determined by the community engagement and as we resolve what the scoping is for that. Um, so depending on the duration of that, it really defines the length of the Part 150 study. So it could take four years, it could take long or four or longer. So that is, uh, you know, one of the elements, but we do want to make sure that we are getting all of the community feedback and we're responding to that, including that in the program. Excuse me. Sarah, I'm sorry. So you're saying it could take four years for us to be able to identify those who have had installation issues? Oh, no, no, no. I meant for the comprehensive part of the Part 150 right. as we're working through um, the technical elements of the DNL other elements of the program. Um, so there's a significant amount of community engagement that happens through each of the process. Um, following the kickoff meeting that we're going to have in uh, the middle of August, uh, we will have a better, it won't be firm, but we'll have a better idea of, like, of the timeline and some of the scope. So later, um, probably in September or so, we can come back with just hot, very high level, but just to give you some idea of what to expect in that process. 
I appreciate that. I look forward to seeing that scope and that timeline and for us to provide yeah. feedback at that point. Yeah. Thank you for the time. Great. Any other questions, uh, Commissioner Feldman? Oh, sorry. Yeah, Commissioner, let's go with someone. Sorry. I want to go back. <laughs> I'll try to be brief. <clears throat> so this 9 to 13 percent noise reduction is what you say you can achieve. Is there an obligation to achieve a certain amount? Was that like sort of like a goal? Um, uh, yes. So what the FAA requires when you're doing a sound insulation program is a five decibel improvement. So 9 to 13, you're yeah. doing good. Quite a bit. Yeah, you know, that's great. I, I, and I would assume um, there's concomitant GHG reduction benefits as well. What's you're, that? I'm sorry. You're going to get, um, you're going to save fuel in heating the house just by insulating it better, right? Yes. So one of the things that we always have to be careful of is because it's a sound program, so we advertise that. We've never done any holistic studies around energy efficiency. However, um, we did have in one of our owner testimonials, um, he actually did his own tracking. And so the, you could read the article. And he did find that not only was it quieter and he could go back to sleep at 4 a.m., but his energy bills had gone down. And, and we do hear that consistently from owners that um, the home feels warmer, that the, it's more energy efficient. We just don't advocate the program that way because it's not, that's not how it's been studied. So we can't make a claim. But it could open up another source of grant funding. If we did start measuring that as well, you, don't, you, you can't get the package to save energy. But if, saving, if getting the package saves energy, then, you know, at City Light or PSE, they'll give you money right? They'll give you rebates on your windows just because you're heating your home more efficiently. Yeah, uh, potentially. I'm not a fully aware of their of their programs, but certainly. Well, Mr. Pillsbury, you can maybe look at it. <laughs> <laughs> you might remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I, I think um, they're, you know, if they're, if you're going in there to measure noise, you know, having some ability to measure heat would be kind of an interesting thing to just to document if that's not too Phil, you might remember we investigated early on, uh, maybe like five, six years ago, King County was doing a concurrent program uh, for uh, insulation, for, like, uh, for making more energy efficient homes. We weren't able to align the programs directly because of the complexity of the two, but King County is doing that program in the same areas, I believe. So I'm just, that when you get the benefit, though, I mean, if we're contributing to making the... And by the way, contributing is like we spend 20% and FAA pays 80%. Isn't that the way it works? Yes. Right. So are these numbers reflecting the total cost or our cost on like, page 24? Total cost. These are the total costs. So Those are uh, representing total costs. These are the total costs. Uh, so that would include there are some costs that aren't FAA eligible and uh, primarily uh, staff time uh, that's capitalized but um, but the FAA does play for pay for design they pay for acoustic testing they pay for the construction uh, so so this is they pay for more than they would normal uh, capital projects at the airport it would be just interesting to see in terms of what's really coming out of our pocket versus the total cost of the project as far as we're concerned it's the only part that matters yeah, well, <laughs> we could break that out no, Steve was it about 10 percent? Uh, approximately. Yeah. 
Oh, okay, and then finally, um, I, I know this is brought up in the past, but doesn't this provide a potential opportunity for like a workforce uh, apprenticeship type program? If we're going to be paying for bringing those folks out there, couldn't we be bringing, you know, having opportunities for other folks to join them to learn about setting a window and framing and all that good stuff? Actually, Steve, if you want to answer that, that ties yeah. in with the PLA for the apartment program. Yeah, I, uh, thanks for that question, Commissioner Feldman. Uh, so our major works contract, the, the first one is going to be the phase one apartments, uh, which were um, uh, in the award phase of that uh, procurement. That one does have a project labor agreement, um, which has apprenticeship um, um, goals and requirements. And also the authorization that I'm seeking today for phase two will also have a project labor agreement. We'll also have uh, apprenticeship um, labor requirements and goals as well. So yes, the program does support uh, the apprenticeship. So we get a twofer out of it. That's great. And finally, do you have an, a ballpark estimate in terms of how much, how far are we in that whole, you know, picture of um, all the eligible homes? Uh, you know, how many have we done versus are in front of us? Yeah, so we've done well in excess of 9,400. Um, and we have only 63 that haven't applied to the, to the program. We've done 9,400. We have 63 left. So that haven't applied. And then we have 77 that have. So... We're, ba we're basically within about 50, 60 homes of. After having done over 9,400. So we're at the finish line. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Commissioner Hazagawa. Thank you. Well, this is exciting. Um, a couple questions. On uh, page 11, it notes that 14 out of 18 eligible apartment complexes applied and two declined to participate in testing. Why do they decline to participate in testing? Yeah, thank you for that uh, question, Commissioner Hasgrad. So one one of the properties was also that I had noted is is in the ATZ, and they they declined both to be tested. They weren't interested in sound insulation or in voluntary acquisition. Um, the other property is a uh, uh, is a care facility, um, and they. After hearing what we had to say, they they just they weren't interested. It could very be, well be that they didn't want to disturb their residents for right. acoustic testing. But again, that kind of fall, fell into a little bit with as I explained was explaining to Commissioner Mohammed. Personally, I think everyone should apply. Everyone would want to participate, but they they don't. And so, really, what we just try to do is make the program as accessible as possible, and that everyone has. Uh, as easy access to the information to make an informed decision. So when you say that those two declined, the, that accounts for some of the four that didn't apply? No, and then there's oh, four okay. that... that Why, how come those four didn't apply? Um, again, it's... A hypothesis. <laughs> right. You, you know, and so things that we do, we try to make sure that we're getting to the right people. These are LLCs. Some of them are multi-member LLCs. And so there's a fair amount of research that we do to, to make sure that we get th that we get to them. Um, I will say that when we look at the four that haven't applied on the map, um, 
they are right at the edge of our noise remedy boundary and I think they are likely not hearing complaints from their their residents with apartment owners they do they don't live in the properties uh, and so if they aren't hearing complaints they're less likely to be to be interested and then for the places of worship it said seven places of worship were eligible five out of seven applied and then as I'm reading it we're on uh, slide 12 uh, that of those five that applied that four tested eligible so what was the um, threshold for eligibility at the initial screening versus once they were tested yeah so thank you for that um, so for all all structures whether it's an apartment a place of worship or a resident it's the same they have to test at or above a 45 decibel to to be eligible for sound insulation and so one of the the five tested above that threshold and so they were not eligible we have similar situations we had one of the apartments that didn't test eligible and we do have single-family homes that, that don't always test eligible that are in in the boundary as well so not it's not sufficient to exist within the, the DNL boundary you also have to do a subsequent decibel testing specific to your location and pass that test that is that is correct that is correct okay that's that's helpful for me to understand this process I think in just a little bit more um, more detail and, and Commissioner just to be clear that's uh, those are federal guidelines and it's eligibility for the federal funding portion okay. so I uh, wouldn't uh, apply to other funds potentially okay um, I'm gonna switch gears though it still lends itself towards accessibility I'm looking for my page here my colleagues know what's coming hold on mm-hmm ah page eight if you would please slide eight so the equity diversity and inclusion recommendations and implementation including enha an enhancement of the website uh, videos press releases blogged um, and a virtual handbook and promoting Google Translate tool utilized on the port website um, so Google Translate is a minimum I mean it's something that we offer because it is a resource that's available for free um, and it's also notoriously insufficient and in, in, inaccurate um, and so um, that's we call it the the minimum effort and so I um, am calling forth our language access plan that we recently passed and the timeline that comes with that for us to do a port-wide analysis of uh, working closely with external relations to understand some of those vital resources and what including on the web-based server should be translated um, you know I, I'm I'm just I is I'm of the opinion that this is a vital resource for folks um, that should be adequately translated I will even admit at the state level that we have used Google Translate as a minimum until the state legislature funds us to be able to pay for professional and accurate translation services which actually function functions the same on the back end through a widget through a toggle feature um, but it's accurate 
um, and from the user experience, it's intuitive and it is incredibly simple. So instead of going into questions for um, you know Michelle and and others about who our hosting site is and and what it can accommodate. Um, I think it's more of a budget question for us, um, which is why I'm glad that Commissioner Muhammad and, and Commissioner Cho asked for clarification on this because authorizing renewal um, is one thing. It's it's a grand sum of $133.5 million, which is more than sufficient to include a nominal expense um, like professional translation, particularly of something like a handbook um, that is, you know, almost static. It will be updated here and there, but it's, you know, word for word can be translated by a professional and then easily update, uploaded um, so that it can be accessed by community members. Um, and then I'm looking at our summary of um, expenses at the back that you provided and that we sort of went over by project, but it'd be helpful for me to understand how public relations and community engagement is specifically built into this strategy and into this budget because that language access aspect is so, I think, important here given who the constituency is within the DNL boundary. So with that said, it's a nominal amount that does fall under um, delegated authority to the executive. It's not going to require any sort of special action for us at all, but it is the will of this commissioner that for this project that all of our outwards facing our website and that in particular the handbook be professionally translated into the top spoken languages within the DNL boundary. So one thing that I do want to clarify is, so for the, the actual handbooks, yeah. when they go to the owners, they are professionally translated. Very good. So we, and we do have, and we have as part of um, our program, we have service directives for language services. So we really do, and I completely agree with you, the Google Translate, we're not calling it the gold standard, it's the conversation starter. And so once we are able to make, we just want it to be accessible, and then once we have the dialogue, we do have professional translators uh, that, that we use to engage with staff. We've done multi-language briefings with, with homeowners. And so I'm not saying we're completely there, but we have come a long way to make sure that the language barrier is not a reason for someone not to participate. Very good. And, and I would also note that we had talked about the multi-language postcards and letters. Again, these are also professionally translated. So they're, it's not a Word document that we run through. We actually have it go to specific language consultants. They do the, the translation yeah. um, so that, that it does. Because we completely agree with you that this is too important to just have it be that we've taken a cheap approach. And so we do try to be very inclusive. Right. Thank you. And I appreciate that. And given that the primary audience for this web page in particular is for potential, you know, el um, eligible community members or entities. Um, I think it's prudent that um, that port staff take note that it should be a particular point of inquiry when conducting that that assessment for our language access plan, um, and coming back to make sure that this is part of their recommendation uh, when they're ready to report on those findings. So, Commissioner, I just wanted to add really quickly. This is perfect timing. Uh, Office of, of Equity and external relations have been working on 
the initial areas of focus for the implementation of the language access plan order and actually specifically identifying which departments and divisions we should start with. Great. So thank you. Uh, we will make sure this is one of the programs that's on our list. I love this team. I really do. Um, okay. And then I think that that's actually it for my line of questioning. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Michelle. you. And I second Commissioner Hazegawa's sentiments around the language access. Uh, so now you have to do it. I'm just kidding. Um, I think that's it for uh, questions. Hearing no further questions, is there a motion and a second? So moved. Second. Excellent. The motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. I'm sorry, I wasn't looking. Was that Commissioner? H Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Appreciate that. Beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. Awesome. The motion passes. Thank you so much for the presentation and, and, and great work on the project. This is underappreciated, but very important stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioners. Thank you. All right. We are moving along on to item 11, presentation and staff reports. Uh, Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11A, Friends of Waterfront Seattle and City of Seattle Waterfront Briefing. Commissioners, the, the, the Seattle Central Waterfront is undergoing a major transformation. These investments will result in an incredible new set of amenities for local residents and visitors. The port is engaging with Friends of the Waterfront and Waterfront Seattle to ensure that we're working collaboratively, collaboratively to reduce impacts on our operations and to collaborate on and, and enhance some of our shared interests. Uh, to talk about this, it's exciting, this exciting work, we're honored to have with us the leadership of both organizations with us today. And so we have Joy uh, Shigaki with, uh, um, um, with the President and CEO, Friends of the, Friends of the Waterfront, and Angela Brady uh, from the Director of the Office of the Waterfront and Civic Project. So. Welcome. Thank you. So Excellent. Angela, we'll start with you, I guess. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, so I'm Angie Brady. I'm the director of the Office of the Waterfront. Um, I work for the city of Seattle. I've been working on the waterfront for about 12 years now. Um, really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, so I'll just dive in. I'm going to do a very, I have a lot of slides. I'm going to, I have a short amount of time to, to speak to them. Um, so I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the progress we've made to date, a little bit about the history, a lot about the progress, and then hand it off to Joy, and she's going to cover all of the amazing work that Friends of Waterfront Seattle does um, in terms of the programming, operations, maintenance, and of course, uh, fundraising for the program. Uh, before we dive in, I want to take just a moment to acknowledge the port uh, for your role in supporting the state's Alaskan Way Viaduct Replacement Program and the city's waterfront program for over 20 years. Uh, we've been working on this program for, for a very long time together, and um, your continued support and encouragement on this program has really helped us get um, to where we are today. Can we go to the next slide? Seattle Waterfront has always been um, a hard-working waterfront centered in maritime history. This is a photo from the early 1900s showing our waterfront entirely built on wood stilts over water with a primary focus on providing railroad access to support transportation of goods being shipped into and out of Seattle at the time. Next slide. 
So we, these are kind of fun historic slides. Um, as we continue to evolve uh, into a vehicle-based society, we started to see more roads and freeways being built in the early 1950s. The state began construction of the Alaska Viaduct, SR-99, and that viaduct stood for approximately 70 years. Next slide. And as we all know the story, uh, the old viaduct has now been replaced by a new SR-99 tunnel, which opened in February of 2019 part of which the port helped to fund, thank you very much. And the viaduct was demolished um, soon thereafter. This is exciting because it's allowed us as a city to focus on building a new Alaskan Way and Elliott Way, very important for the port because it serves as one of two north-south uh, freight routes through downtown Seattle, as well as providing key access to and from the cruise ship terminal down at Pier 66. The removal of the viaduct also allows us this huge opportunity to build a new 20-acre waterfront park, along with enhancing key east-west connections into downtown, which ultimately allows the city to reconnect its incredible downtown to our beautiful new waterfront. Next. I'm not going to spend much time on this slide. Um, you know the history. Um, I will say, you know, in 2012, after much broad community engagement, the city's uh, council adopted a concept design and a framework plan that allowed us to move forward with our new waterfront program. In 2013, the city created the Office of the Waterfront, uh, which I am now the director of, and we began advancing permitting and design efforts uh, for our new waterfront. We secured funding by, from the state and um, the city at that point to advance our work efforts. And that same year, we started construction of our new seawall, and the waterfront has literally been under construction ever since. Next. In terms of the city's overall waterfront program construction schedule, our new seawall, which forms the foundation for the waterfront, was completed in 2017. All projects shown on the screen in, um, in green are part of the waterfront program. Those are, that are shown in blue are what we call our partner projects. And the key takeaway here is that the bulk of the city's waterfront park improvements could not begin construction until the tunnel was open, the viaduct was down. Uh, in the fall of 2019, once most of the viaduct was down, we were able to start construction of the new Alaskan Way, Elliott Way Street, and the waterfront park, uh, which we've built within, within the footprint of the old viaduct. Um, I'll short, share more on that in just a moment. As you can see in this graphic, we plan to be complete with construction of our new waterfront in 2025, just a few short years from now. So pretty exciting. Next slide. Um, I'm going to apologize a bit. We had a little mix-up on the slide uh, on our end in terms of the cost and funding slide. This is an older slide. Uh, we're going to send an updated slide for the port and would like to update that for the record. The total cost of this program is $781 million, uh, with city funding at $295 and state funding at $216 million. Uh, the difference in that funding relates to some of the city uh, projects on the Overlook Walk and some east-west connections. So, um, Outside of the city and state funding, the waterfront incorporates unique funding sources, including the waterfront LID, which utilizes a small percentage of the expected property value increases from downtown property owners to help pay for the new waterfront park, and philanthropic funding, um, which comes from Friends of Waterfront Seattle and their strong efforts to raise money for this program, $110 million, which is an unprecedented amount of philanthropic funding. So we really appreciate that. Next slide. Um, we're making a ton of progress on construction of our new waterfront, and a few of our 2023 milestones are listed here. 
Uh, I'm not going to go through these in detail, but I just I did want to highlight that uh, we were able to open the new Alaskan Way and Elliott Way Roadway in April of this year. And thank you to Commissioner Cho for being a part of that event. And um, he, he spoke at the event very eloquently. Um, and we saw a couple of other commissioners there as well. So thank you for your ongoing support. Let's go to the next one. We recognize we're on indigenous land and have been committed to ensuring that tribal culture and priorities are reflected in the waterfront program. We've partnered with the tribes throughout the design and planning process. We continue to collaborate with our indigenous partners as we build out the new waterfront park. Um, early on, we convened listening sessions with the tribes and, um, and here are some of the key priorities that came out of those listening sessions. Uh, first and foremost, protecting salmon habitat and the marine environment. Um, creating a design that reflects tribal history, art, and culture, uh, coordinating on public programming that celebrates tribal history and culture, and that's something that Friends works really, really hard at and, and does a superior job at. Um, why don't we go to the next slide? Uh, just a quick note that we completed the reconstruction of phase one of the LA Bay seawall in 2017. The new seawall extends from Washington Street just up to the north end of Pier 62 near Virginia, and it forms the foundation for our new waterfront. Habitat restoration and protection have been key in the design of the seawall and the habitat beach at the south end of Coleman Dock. Um, and we've included elements that encourage and support salmon migration, such as light penetrating surfaces, which you can kind of see up in the upper left-hand corner of this slide. Um, and a textured seawall that promotes habitat of species on which the salmon feed, which in turn ultimately helps sustain tribal fishing in Elliott Bay. Next. And this is just a cross-section showing uh, the seawall with the habitat bench on the left-hand side, the light penetrating surface and glass floor up above um, that lets light through to the salmon migration corridor. Next. Another cool photo from uh, down below, just showing the seawall in all its glory. Next. This slide shows an overview of the projects included in the waterfront program. Our work spans from King Street at the south end and Stadium District, um, all the way up to Bell Street and Belltown at the north end. And as you know, the spine of our program includes construction of a new Alaskan Way and Elliott Way along the former footprint of the old viaduct, um, and a new linear park along the water's edge west of the new street. We're also delivering a mix of projects that improve east-west connections into downtown to the waterfront, including four pedestrian bridges, a host of pedestrian and bike improvements along key corridors downtown, two new overwater piers, and several key partner projects, including a new um, a market front at Pike Place Market and a new aquarium expansion at Ocean Pavilion. Next. This is a typical cross-section of our waterfront. It just highlights the fact that the Alaskan Way Roadway has been built within the footprint of the former viaduct. You can kind of see the ghost of the viaduct in this visual on the right-hand side. Mm. Two lanes in each direction are provided on Alaskan Way. We have, um, we're constructing a two-way dedicated bike path that spans the entire length of the waterfront, separated from vehicles, separated from pedestrians. Um, and then, of course, we are building a new waterfront park promenade, which is shown on the left-hand side of the screen here, which dedicates plenty of space for pedestrians with seating, landscaping gardens, uh, a boardwalk, and a unique mix of art and cultural wayfinding. Next. One of the city's key priorities for the design of our new waterfront is environmental stewardship. 
and the protection of Elliott Bay and Puget Sound. And a key part of this work was to focus on the natural treatment of polluted stormwater prior to its entry into our waters. Um, and we've done that through an array of what we call green stormwater infrastructure facilities that span the entire length of the waterfront. So we're able to treat an annual average of 10, over 10 million gallons uh, of stormwater runoff every year. Pretty proud of that. Next. And these are just a couple of images. Why don't we skip through? Why don't you go to the next one? Uh, another image um, showing some of the green stormwater infrastructure on the east side of the street. Next. We also have on the promenade some tide line, uh, what we call tide line terraces that um, provide additional uh, stormwater code requirements for water quality. Um, they go beyond the stormwater code requirements for water quality and some of the treatment that we're doing on the promenade side. Next. Uh, in terms of street function for Alaskan Way, um, they vary depending on where you are in the corridor. Um, the south end demand is very high. We're accommodating uh, full-time dedicated transit lanes in each direction uh, for King County Metro that serves all of southwest King County to get folks to and from downtown Seattle. Um, we are also providing uh, Q, Q lanes, two Q lanes between Main and Yesler Way to support Coleman Docks operations, one of the largest ferry terminals in the entire nation. Um, for the most part, we have two lanes in each direction from Yesler um, all the way up north into Belltown. And I might just point out one key component of the new street is a new connection work that is going to be under construction here in the next couple of months in October um, that takes you from the new Alaskan Way back down to the old Alaskan Way. And you can see that represented on the right-hand side of this graphic with that red Arrow. That connection was really important to the port um, and other stakeholders as it provides access to Pier 66 um, and all of the, the port's facilities up north there. Next. Just running through a couple of graphics showing some of the projects and then I'll hand it off to Joy here. Um, this is a habitat beach that we built as part of the seawall um, project. We just recently opened this to the public. We're really proud of it. It's um, opened on July 1st and uh, we're working right now with the state. They actually have a project, an art project to install some indigenous art on this beach. So we're actually gonna be closing it back up in, Feb in, uh, in the fall, allowing them to install that additional art and then doing a grand opening celebration with friends uh, next spring as they have a, a plan to put a tenant in the old Washington Street boat landing that's shown there kind of in the black uh, color on the right hand screen. Um, there you can also see Alaskan Way and the fact that we've constructed most of the roadway in the south end, so we're pretty proud of that. Next. We have a project in uh, Pioneer Square that is an improvements project for pedestrians and bicyclists, and um, it's one of our key east-west connection projects that connects Pioneer Square to the new waterfront. That project starts um, in October of this year. Take us about a year to build that and we'll be done next fall with that one. Next. We have another project uh, in the heart of downtown at Pike Pine. Uh, these are streetscape and bicycle improvements that, we're, um, that, we are, that are under construction right now to reconnect the waterfront to our downtown up to Capitol Hill. 22 blocks of improvements. Uh, we started construction in February. We'll be done sometime next spring. Next. We completed construction recently of uh, the Union Street Pedestrian Bridge. This was opened in December of 2022. This is a connection from Western Avenue down to the waterfront. 
Um, we have a lot of hills in Seattle. It's difficult for people to traverse to and from the waterfront and down, into downtown. So uh, we have this pedestrian bridge with a new elevator. It provides accessibility um, to those who, who struggle with, um, with those hills. Next. Here's another pedestrian bridge that is currently under construction at Marion Street. This is a key connection between First Avenue downtown and the new Coleman Dock facility. We've done a lot of work with Washington State Ferries um, in coordination with them to get this built. Um, we plan to open Marion Street Ped Bridge in uh, September of this year and hope to have a big celebration with uh, Washington State Ferries to uh, celebrate the terminal and the, and, a, and the bridge opening as well. And then we plan to, to remove the temporary bridge that's in place down on, um, on Columbia. Next. And just a view of the future par park promenade from the Marion Street pedestrian bridge. It's gonna be a beautiful space. Next. We're under construction right now with a new Pier 58. This is a pier that is located between the Great Wheel, Pier 57 at Miner's Landing, and the Aquarium. Uh, this project started in um, fall of, of last year, 2022. And we plan to be complete with this in early, early 25. So this will include a, a children's playground, some grassy areas, nice wide open flexible spaces for Friends of Seattle to program uh, plenty of fun activities on, on the pier. Next. Uh, one of our crown jewels of the overall waterfront is called the Overlook Walk. This is a pedestrian bridge structure that extends from Pike Place Market, spans up and over the new roadway of Alaskan Way and down to the waterfront. This is a project we are building in partnership with um, our friends over at the Seattle Aquarium. Uh, you guys are well familiar with this project, I'm certain. Um, so both projects, both the aquarium and the Overlook Walk have been under construction for several years now. And we're looking at probably another year of construction for both of those. I'm really excited about this project. Next. And a really fun uh, construction photo aerial just looking at some of the progress that has been made on both of those projects as well as on Alaskan Way. Um, next. A rendering of Seattle Aquarium, Ocean Pavilion, next. Just wanted to note that uh, Pier 62 was one of our, what we called our, our early win projects. So this is a project that we were able to build before the viaduct uh, came down. And um, it actually opened in September 2020. Uh, it was a, a, a tough year to open a new park, but you know, that, that's, that's where we landed. Um, and Friends has been doing some incredible programming of that pier ever since. Can you go to the next one? Um, just a, you know, they've just been doing a phenomenal job making sure that, um, that people have an amazing space to come down to and visit. Um, and I'm gonna actually let Joy take it from here and talk more about all of her great work down there. Thanks, Thanks. Angie. Um, thanks so much, Executive Director Mentruck and Commissioners, for the invitation to talk a little bit about our work with Friends of Waterfront Seattle and what is an extraordinary new urban downtown park that the city really deserves. I, let's see, I think it's actually a different PowerPoint. Can you need the second deck? Yeah, the second deck. Yeah, thanks. give us a moment. We'll get that second deck up. Great, thanks. Thank you, Aubrey. 
Waterfront Park will be our new front porch for Seattle and the world. And I think this is kind of an apt moment. Um, there have been a lot of efforts for downtown parks, and sometimes it actually takes perhaps an earthquake and a lot of perseverance um, and vision for this to take place. Um, so as the nonprofit partner to the city of Seattle, we are really thrilled to what it means to build an extraordinary place, but then what it means to actually program it, create belonging and safety in it, um, to create um, a real sense of joy in a park, in a downtown park that's meant for everyone in a public space, um, and then to steward it um, in perpetuity, which is really our role. Next slide, please. So as a reminder, we're on the land of the Coast Salish people and the Coast Salish waterfront. For us, it's a real reminder about um, the fact that those people have resided here since time immemorial and continue to thrive. Much of our work also is centered in listening to indigenous voices and to communities and embedding that in our programs um, and in how we activate the waterfront. Next slide, please. There are not many opportunities to really create kind of iconic moments, and I think we're really there with Waterfront Park and this new front porch. This is the largest civic project in the history of the city, and what this new 20-acre civic investment will be will be an amazing catalyst. It's going to be a major catalyst for reinvestment and revitalization of our downtown and our region. Um, it's going to attract an anticipated 8 million people, new visitors a year, which is extraordinary. I think that could be a conservative number. Um, but we know that it's going to bring people, and especially locals, this is going to be a park that really people feel that sense of connection back to the waterfront and a new reminder of the history of this new generation of the dynamic waterfront, including a working waterfront, a lot of rich history and business and connection to cultural gems um, and institutions, including the Pike Place Market, the Seattle uh, Aquarium's New Ocean Pavilion, which the port I know has supported and is a real partner for us with friends. And it will open in 2025. Um, and be an incredible place for a new world-class experience for everyone. Next slide, please. So a little bit more about Friends of Waterfront Seattle. We are a 501c3, and we're specifically um, a partner to the city of Seattle. Um, and we're responsible, as Angie mentioned, to fundraising and programming and stewarding Waterfront Park now. Um, and for generations to come through public-private partnership. Um, and it's just to remind us that we need government to bring these massive projects to scale, but you also need the nimbleness um, and the ability for nonprofits to bring in uh, philanthropic support, business support, corporate partnerships um, to be able to help sustain um, and maintain some of this incredible work. Um, so we're in the middle of leading a comprehensive $200 million um, capital campaign of which that is contributing con to construction and programming and community engagement, um, longtime advocacy, public safety operations and fundraising. Um, but we do that through partnership, and fundamentally that is our work. We're a lean nonprofit of basically 33 full-time staff um, and seasonal staff that have really brought our programming work um, to a whole new scale, and I think also then energy down on the waterfront. That's been really important to placemaking. But that partnership includes our partnership with the port, obviously, and an invitation into that deeper work as we think about the future and our alignment and our goals and the work um, and really the connections that we'll have to visitors and tourists um, and to many of the other commitments that you have um, in our region. But this is really about creating a park for all. You can build a place, but the real question is, how do you create that sense of belonging and placemaking in the process? Um, which is why organizations like us are really important to create that connection back to community, to be able to ensure that there really is that sense of um, ownership of public space. Um, that's the shift from the days of creating parks in neighborhoods or parks in places where not everyone felt that sense of safety and connection. 
Um, we are part of the Highline Network, which is a network of large infrastructure parks, kind of reclaimed infrastructure like Highway 99, the Highline, old railways um, that have the ability to create new open space, but also have the ability to really ask the question, how do we create equitable spaces in our cities? Um, and we've seen a lot of transition since you've seen the Highline come online in 2007, but many other parks, the Underline in Miami, um, the Beltway in Atlanta, um, there are nearly 100 urban park projects happening in cities throughout um, the country, and we are gonna have an extraordinary one of our own. Next slide. So equity is a large part of our work. And again, going back to that question of if you're placemaking, um, how do you ensure that it's a place that really people see themselves in and also ensure that there's really democratic access to these spaces? We acknowledge as an organization, you know, the, the historic and existing racism embedded in our city. And we are committed to becoming an anti-racist organization and prioritizing racial justice um, and racial equity within our organization and fundamentally within this public space that we are um, caretakers of alongside our partners and our partners with the city. And so it's that question of how do you cultivate um, and really invest in inclusive spaces where people both see themselves, um, feel that sense of safety and connection. Um, so we're really focusing on BIPOC communities as well as under, other underserved communities that people feel that sense of welcome and invitation. So we're doing that a few ways. Um, our work in people and culture in the organization has been very central to that in terms of how we hire and think about people who bring the, that value set to our work. Um, the other piece that I'm gonna talk a little bit more about is our community-centered programming. Um, we could design our own programs, but our real approach is there's an opportunity to really develop partnerships with community partners and co-design our work together. Um, and what we've seen is just really an incredible offering of um, what is a demonstration of our values here in the Northwest. Um, and the third example is we have two community committees specifically designed to really get community input. The first is a pulling together committee, and that is specifically of indigenous voices um, and community members who provide context to this experience. How are we sharing and considering um, how we're elevating indigenous voices and perspectives as we build this park? Um, the second is a community connections committee, which is a committee of all people of color who really, again, help to reflect on questions of safety, help to reflect on questions of our, are we doing sort of um, community-centric fundraising? What does marketing communications look like? So that we're really doing the due diligence of this evolving practice in bringing this new public space to life. Next slide, please. So this is a snapshot of our 2022 programming on Pier 62, as Angie mentioned. Opened in the middle of COVID, not really a great opportunity for a lot of fanfare around that space. But I think what we know during the time of pandemic is public spaces became some of the most prized places for people mm -hmm. to gather, um, not just safely, but also see themselves in it. Um, so we've been programming really um, since actually, since 2016 along the waterfront, but with the opening of this first public part of Waterfront Park, we've seen over 81,000 people come for our in-person programming on the pier. And that's about 373,000 visitors that given year. In total, we've seen about 875,000 people actually come to the pier since it opened. We've had 163 total events and activations, 177 artists and performers be part of that, um, from Zumba to large concerts to block party um, to Waba Korean Festival. Um, part of our programming also includes bringing small business. And so what you're seeing here is a representation mm -hmm. of vendors who come down. It could be a food truck. Um, it could be someone who also has a small business to make offerings to the community. Of that, 56% were women-owned and 95% were BIPOC-owned. Um, 
And as I mentioned, you know, community-centered and co-designed programs really happen through our program partnerships. So we would work hand in glove with our partners from across the city to be able to design really exceptional dynamic programming that's available for everyone for free. And part of our experience has also been ensuring that we have a visitor experience survey to, um, to those that are coming down to the pier the last few years. Um, it's about an eight to 10 minute survey that really helps us to understand where people are coming from across the county or even outside of King County, um, as well as what the experience has been like. And overall, 80% of the guests have indicated feeling satisfied and feeling that sense of safety in this place, which you know is an incredible opportunity to be able to ask those questions before we operate and open in our entirety, but also to make the necessary pivots that are necessary in this process. 80% um, overall of our artists and performers and program partners have been black, indigenous, and people of color. I think asking the question of how do we make that a norm in our public space, I think is a real opportunity and a sense of pride that we should all have in what we're building together. Next slide, please. So in 2023, um, our summer program has begun, although we have been doing programming in the winter. So if any of you happen to come down to Pier 62 in February, um, we had a... Uh, uh, our fire pits with s'mores, we thought we maybe would get 200 people. We had 950 people um, on a very rainy day in Seattle. And for Lunar New Year in January, you know, from the previous year, we thought we maybe would have 500 people. We had 2,400 people. So again, this place is being built. It's being identified as a place of great belonging and connection to community, which I think is a reminder. We're not only reconnecting downtown and the waterfront to community, we're, we're reconnecting people to each other in an extraordinary way. Summer is really the height of a lot of our programming, again, as a lead up to grand opening. And so what you're seeing here are some of our large major events happening on the waterfront. Um, we had a massive monkeys day, which actually was a, a, a Olympics qualifier for breakdancing, which is, I didn't realize it was a qualifying and it was a event. Um, Juneteenth on the waterfront happened in June. We had IndigiQueer um, Festival in June as part of Pride Month. And this coming weekend, Pier Sounds will be Friday and Saturday evening, so please join us. Um, you also see a Waba Korean Festival, a really dynamic block party, and welcome the part to, port to be part of that as one of our neighbors, very embedded in this um, neighborhood on the waterfront. Um, and Salmon Homecoming, which hosted its first Salmon Homecoming event um, since pre-pandemic last year and will continue to be a major part of our programming. But we also have small and large recreation events from Bollywood to yoga, Qigong, and Zumba. And um, we see that on Sundays. I think one of our first Zumba classes at 11 o'clock brought in about 120 people from the neighborhood, people walking by, um, also probably people coming off of, off of cruise ships just north of Pier 62 to sort of join in the fun. Next slide, please. Um, Angie had spoken to this earlier. Um, we have a modified, obviously, a total number in the budget, which is $781 million in terms of the spend of what it takes to build this extraordinary new place, um, of which, as was mentioned, Friends is bringing in private philanthropy of $110 million as part of our comprehensive campaign. Next slide, please. But part of the work of Friends in this comprehensive campaign has been a contribution to construction, but it also has been to invest in our ongoing work of programming, operations, public safety, um, and what it really takes to bring a nonprofit from the ground to be ensuring that this complex new urban park becomes a place that's well managed, well cared for, and really connected back into community in a meaningful way. Um, so we've raised 108 million to date, um, and we are looking to close the gap of 90 million between now and the end of 2025. Next slide, please. So we know there's gonna be a massive economic impact. This is actually 
um, shared with the city of Seattle in terms of the one-time construction impact from this long-term project of looking at $1.1 billion in overall impact, nearly 6,200 full-time jobs, um, $376 million in wages, um, and significant local taxes of $30 million. But we also know that there will be ongoing economic impact of those coming to the waterfront between programming, operations, and really visitor spending. So when you think about the 8 million new people who will be coming down to the waterfront, um, as well as about 6 million people who currently visit the waterfront based on the Seattle Historic Waterfront Association's data, we're anticipating based on a report back in 2019 with HRNA about 288 million overall annual um, ongoing spending, um, 2,300 permanent jobs, 103 million in wages, um, and 10 million in taxes. We also know there'll be many other impacts um, from the programs and operation and visitor spending. We know there'll be lots of walkability and connection. This real project is about Im improving pedestrian passageway to the waterfront. Um, instead of going down challenging rickety staircases, you'll be coming down kind of the world-class one-acre part of the park or down Union Street to make a much easier passage down to the waterfront, but also an invitation back into the rest of downtown and to rediscover neighborhoods because you couldn't do that when the highway was once there. Money opportunities for small and local businesses. We are really looking at doing some incubation of small businesses, along with a lot of the programming of bringing in um, small and minority-owned um, businesses to the pier and to the park. Um, and talent and attraction of keeping people in the city and our downtown vibrant and alive. Next slide, please. So this is another snapshot of looking at tourism impact. And really, I know the cruise industry, too, has been a major part of the fabric of this city and certainly of the commitment that the port has to bringing tourists into um, the Northwest and obviously up to Alaska. Um, the statistics in 2022, as many of you may know, um, we had about 33.3 million tourists in Seattle. Um, about 5.6 million came to the waterfront um, and a million cruise passengers at that time. Um, in 2023 and this year, um, we're estimating, based on Visit Seattle's number, about 34 million tourists coming to the city, um, 6.5 to 6.8 million visitors to the waterfront, um, and about 1.4 million cruise visitors and cruise passengers. So we know that that number is on the upswing. So if we look at opening season of the park in 2025, we're anticipating, this is, this is an anticipation, you know, 34 to 35 million tourists coming to Seattle. We know about 6.8 will be coming to the waterfront. But what we anticipate is this 8 million new annual visitors coming to Waterfront Park, and that is locals coming to have experience down on the waterfront and to downtown, as well as the number of tourists locally, nationally, internationally, who will want to come and really have an extraordinary experience, along with the 1.4 million cruise passengers. So we expect another 15 million people in total when Waterfront Park opens in 2025, which is an extraordinary opportunity for us to really showcase our city um, and bring the best forward. Next slide. Public safety has been a real important aspect to our work. Um, we're solving for a lot of issues that COVID has impacted in many of our cities, but the real question is how do we do it in a humane and a really um, integrated way? We've been uh, piloting um, an integrated public safety approach on Pier 62 for the last few years. It's been holistic and humane, in part because what we know is policing people in public space is not the way you address public safety. Um, we, as friends, have had a partnership with Evergreen Treatment Services REACH program with outreach workers who engage with people who are unhoused, who are in need of support and services, um, and are able to make that point of connection when there's a need. Um, the second layer, our operations team for friends, we are the customer-facing um, 
face on the pier in green shirts to provide directions and help where needed. Um, we recently walked into a really important partnership with Seattle Center, which I'll talk about in a minute, and their um, emergency service officers who are able to enforce the park rules, um, remind you you're not able to smoke on the pier and a few other things. Again, very customer facing. They've been doing that work in Seattle Center for, for many, many decades and are an incredible asset in our city. And then the last layer of that is calling Seattle Police Department when there's a situation where the public is unsafe. But we've made investments um, to date about 2.5 million for public safety um, as the nonprofit recognizing how important it is to make sure that people feel safe in this public space. And then we'll spend another 650,000 this year. Part of our partnership with um, the Seattle Center was an additional $4 million in public dollars um, being matched by the city's Metropolitan Park District. And that was a critical part of our partnership with the city um, and with Seattle Center to ensure that everyone in the park has an incredible experience. Next slide. So if you haven't been down to the waterfront, though many of you I'm sure are walking um, through it and around it, um, Seattle Center officially took um, lead on public safety and maintenance as of July 1st and bringing their incredible expertise of urban public space management um, that really align with our goals as Waterfront Park Seattle of safety um, and welcoming and a sense of real inclusion for everyone um, in this new public space. So I wanted to say thank you again for your time, allowing us to be here and talk a little bit about what is coming up in our city um, and really the opportunity to continue to align with much of the work of the port um, and our values and goals. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for that presentation to both of you. I'll open it up for my colleagues to ask any questions or provide any thoughts. Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you for the presentation. That was really informative. I'm sorry I had to step out for a second for a call. Um, but I, I did want to just express gratitude, um, especially being a port that is focused on economic development, tourism, um, sustainability, environmental sustainability. It's really great uh, hearing the projects that you all are working on and how collaborative um, your approaches and the sensitivity even around the tribes. That was really helpful to hear today. And so just want to um, express my gratitude there. Um, I had one question regarding um, the budgeting. You guys outlined the that there's funding that you received from the city, state. Are there federal dollars that you guys are seeking? I'm kind of thinking about the federal infrastructure bill. I know the port, we're seeking a lot of those dollars. And I'm thinking of opportunities for partnership and collaboration and what you all are, what your strategy is around that. I can answer yeah. that question. Yeah. We have zero federal dollars in the waterfront program, and um, we are considered fully funded at this point. Um, you guys, I'm sure you know this well. Uh, once you've once you've started construction of a major project or any mega project, um, federal funds are hard to come by. You can't you can't really use federal funding uh, once you've started construction. So we are we're not we are not looking for federal funding moving forward um, at this point. That's a great thing. <laughs> yeah. It's tough very, to come by. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very rare to hear. Um, well, anyways, thank, thank you both for the presentation. It was very informative. Thank you. Any others? Commissioner Feldman? Thank you both. It's, you know, every time I see the presentation, it gets more and more exciting to see how it's maturing along the way. You know, um, without sounding too provincial, though, um, you know, our former port commissioner, uh, Paul Schell, Mm. and mayor w really had a jump on all of us you know we we developed the north side of this waterfront mm -hmm. well beforehand and um and we're committed to 
you know, having some, you know, connectivity between these two projects. I, I just would think that in these presentations to show how the entire length of this place has been revitalized is, is really, it's like strengthens, you know, the partnership strengthens the overall accomplishment. And we're obviously struggling a little bit with the bike path by the cruise terminal, but like, you know, the railroad tracks along the George Benson, all those tracks. I mean, I just can't believe those things still exist. You know, right of ways like that, you don't come by too often, but I, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, it's obviously not your project, but you know, the port is here to be a partner on the waterfront. And I, I just think we could be embraced a little bit as part of this process. Not that we can take it. I can't take any we credit for it. We embrace you. <laughs> Careful what you ask for, Fred. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, honestly, the, the, the transformation is yeah. throughout. Yeah. Yeah. But like, um, you know, I, I just would see when these maps, you're making these maps, like you can. You're asking you know, the, to extend art. Or yeah. the World them Trade them the Center, you know, um, Pier 66, the harbor. You basically stop at Bell Harbor. Virginia, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, honestly, I think it only strengthens all this yeah. great stuff that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that was just my, yeah. my point. And it's very brilliant to be a partner in such a fantastic thing. And mm -hmm. we're working now to try to help um, interpret some of this stuff through the signage work right. that's going on. And yeah. mm -hmm. I've got some propellers if looking for a place to go. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I know passion for propellers. No, but anyway, I, I, I am delighted to see this work continue to mature. And yeah. We're all part of the waterfront, and I just no, absolutely. absolutely. It's I think for us, and I, I really appreciate the point. Um, we have a pretty heavy lift to keep with fundraising, right? And I think it's it's also trying to educate the public after tw twelve years of construction. What is this final sort of icing on the cake, as it were, after all of this work, and yeah. really trying to raise the awareness about a project that has been a long time coming. Um, and so, appreciate wanting to also give a larger context of who else is connected down here. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. I, so I do you. see the sculpture garden. Is, is, you know, is basically anchors the, the north end. It does. Which is, another, in fact, it's in. <coughs> Bless you. Excuse me. The, the switchback coming down off the, to the aquarium mm -hmm. from the Pike Place Market um, is similar, I think, of the crossover from the, over the sculpture garden. And it's a fantastic pairing of these two sure. artistic Absolutely. things. And yeah. anyway, I just see it all in one so great time to be alive and seeing yeah, this sort of really thing happen. Come to life. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Commissioner Hazegawa. Um, I just wanted to take the opportunity to express my enthusiasm for the progress of this work. Um, it's really amazing some, I don't know, eight years ago serving as president of Seattle JACL mm -hmm. at the time and uh, or, a group called G3 Associates was doing stakeholdering mm -hmm. and initial visioning for this project. Mm -hmm. And the things that we talked about that were so important to us as community members and locals, you see deliberately incorporated into the fruits of this work and the, prog the progress. And it is um, really, really um, a beautiful framework, um, e uh, executive director, because um, I think what you said was it's it's there's something to um, making a, um, a project that feels both um, safe and inclusive. Is that how you framed mm -hmm. it? Both mm -hmm. safe and um, and inclusive. And um, 
I, I get to raise my family knowing this. And as much as you know, somebody who would, was from Seattle and loved the drive on the viaduct every single day, <laughs> um, you know, you you see that um, that sort of that convergence of different events to bring us to this, which is such a tremendous public benefit. Um, and yeah, my favorite aspect is the Pike Place overpass to the <laughs> brand new aquarium that I had the opportunity to tour, which features awesome. a Shark Tank Oculus right, in right. the entryway as people are buying their tickets. Mm -hmm. And I just got to see this amazing custom piece of plexiglass mm -hmm. that was manufactured somewhere and then driven over uh, by truck mm -hmm. and installed and I got to see it as soon as it was installed. I mean, it's just incredible. They took us up to the rooftop, and the one detail that you didn't mention, I'm hoping you can confirm this was not just my imagination. <laughs> they actually have a giant slide that will take people from the top, um, uh, uh, the, the plaza there on top of the aquarium down to the street. On the right I hand hope they side. Uh, there are sets of stairs that take people <laughs> down. A, there are stairs. We have a couple of slides on the Overlook Walk. Right. Um, on the very top of the Overlook Walk, we have a children's yeah. kind of play. I was going to have a whole line of a questioning around controls <laughs> around a giant slide. No. They said that's where the slide is. And I thought, oh my gosh. I, yeah, that was a joke. And I am I, certain of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't have a, we don't have a slide. a giant slide. Okay, I'm done. But I. I will say I, it's just so exciting and to see in the presentation where it started to where it is now and to get a preview for the public about what it's going to look like. I'm so excited for how this is going to present to a global audience when the World Cup comes here. Yeah. Um, and just we are so ready to put Seattle back on the map. Um, and just to quote you again, Executive Director, um, this is really um, a, a waterfront that Seattle deserves. So I'm excited about this. Thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Hazagawa. Well, let me just echo those sentiments real quickly and just express how excited I am about all this. I, think, I don't think I've ever been so excited about the waterfront. Uh, this is a generational transformation. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's something that um, is not just gonna make a huge difference for our constituents, uh, but also will make a difference for how we are perceived as a region. And mm -hmm. uh, as you all know, the, the, pandemic, the pandemic was very tough for us as a region. Mm -hmm. I think it's very serendipitous that all this stuff will come um, to you know completion just as we are coming out of this pandemic and getting back to full swing, as you mentioned. Uh, and as we know, there, we're having record cruise seasons yeah. summer after summer. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see how long we can hold that up. but. The reality is that uh, the more positive of a impression that we give to those who visit us, the more likelihood more people will come and the more likelihood people will come back. Um, and as an economic development agency, that's what we like to see, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think people uh, can, you know, underestimate uh, how much economic activity mm -hmm. uh, this generates. You, you had some numbers towards the end of your presentation, mm -hmm. uh, but also just the cruise industry in general having so many, you know, what was it, 1.4 million passengers a summer. Um, all the small businesses that feed into those operations, whether it's, you know, the food, uh, the, the supplies that go on those vessels, right? 
um, all the money that's spent in and around the community when people fly in to take those cruises the day before, the day af days after to stick around. Um, and so I'm very, very excited uh, and I cannot wait uh, for it all to come together. Um, it might even convince me to move from the east side to Seattle. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but I did have a quick question. Pier 62, there, right now there's the functioning Pier 62, and then there's the weird pier, the 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 wood pier right next to it, adjacent to it. Is that? Oh, it's, it's been demolished. It's yeah. been demolished, right? Because I saw it in the in the yeah. rendering, and I was like, I don't know if that's there anymore. Yeah. And that 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 was that the old 62, or what what was that? Yeah, the, that? yeah. Well, the pier originally was uh, Pier 62 and 63. It was a, it was a got it. They were double pier conjoining. situation. Okay. Yeah. So we built the new Pier 62 and we demolished 63 just because. Uh, Seismically, plenty of space. Okay, and so that's 62. that that's not planning to be replaced. We're not planning to rebuild that. No. That okay. Here. Okay. Just want, I just just curious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Awesome. Well, uh, any other questions? Last words. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh yeah, commission. Uh, sorry, commission. It's executive director. Mitchell. Yeah, I just want to say thanks for the coordination and the collaboration with your staffs, and I look forward to working on that. I think just uh, one of the great views will be from the conference center, looking back uh, at Pier 66 Absolutely. from the top view of the conference center, looking back over at all the projects, and I enjoy just seeing the progress daily going up all the time, and it's uh, in that exciting phase. And so, I look forward to that continued coordination, collaboration. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. Excellent. We'll move on. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record, and Executive Director will introduce it. Thank you. This is Agenda Item 11B, 2024 Budget Development Briefing. Commissioners, with yesterday's second budget retreat, you have now been hard at work on the 2024 budget for over a month. While we still have a long way to go before the final budget approval in November, we're making great progress to balance our need to be conservative in the face of to be fiscally responsible, responsible in, the, in the face of un economic uncertainty in the future and with our commitment to invest in our core programs, operations, people in the community as well. We're pleased to present an update on our budget planning work today and for the public's benefit. Uh, I'm going to actually run through the slides here. Dan Thomas is available virtually if there's uh, some issue here, but I thought but I thought that it was relatively short and it's kind yeah. of a recap for the public's benefit, so I thought I would cover these slides, Commissioner. So, um, so next slide, please. So what we're going to do, we're just going to walk through uh, the environmental scan and then look at the budgeting principles and strategies. And then finally, we'll end on the 2024 budget calendar as well. Next slide, please. <coughs> of course, commissioners, you're well aware of the things that we look both nationally, internationally, and then locally, the different, the different uh, uh, elements that are out there. Um, for us, we are tracking full, to a full recovery from the pandemic uh, President Cho was just mentioning that coming out of that, and we are uh, moving towards a full recovery from that. And as we know, we just sent a new record for uh, for SEA for single people traveling through the uh, TSA ch uh, checkpoints yest yesterday, and we're trans transitioning towards that new normal and whatever it looks like in the public health uh, scenario here. Um, as we know, inflation has moderated, but it was still it's well above historical average at least for the last uh, decade. And looking at that. And then we know that in certain sectors, economic growth is still strong, but there is uh, the potential in other areas for shortage of workers and other things for recessions is out there as well. Um, 
as I said, was saying shortage of workers, but there's a com competitive job market. That's both for us and then for our tenants as well, looking for uh, um, uh, looking for a, uh, the workforce that we need to accomplish our work. Um, we have, uh, of course, you heard in the budget retreat, we have the uh, um, uh, environmental remediation um, liabilities that are emerging on the planning horizon out 10 years for us to think about. And as we look at our uh, planning, uh, planning for the budget in the, for the next five-year and then 10-year period to keep in mind. And um, the impact of climate change. We're seeing that especially this summer, whether it can be manifested in different weather conditions. We don't know that what that's going to yield for us, but there's also the focus of we don't know what that is, those climate impacts for us going forward, and uh, that induces un uncertainty as well. And then uh, we'll continue to focus on... Uh, the community and other equity issues throughout uh, both the areas we impact in our community and the, the nation writ large. So it kind of gives that view of the world for environmental scan is things are trending up better than what we thought we were going to be coming out of the pandemic, but there's still uncertainty going forward. So next slide, please. And this just uh, validates some of the things we were saying about that recovery, both for uh, um, uh, this is recovering of the uh, uh, the passenger forecast for uh, for where we are at SEA, which is a big driver of our revenues here at the airport, obviously, and shows that uh, we expect to be recovered uh, almost to the 2019 level by 2024 going forward. Next slide, please. Another big uh, driver of uh, revenue is, uh, is the cruise industry, and as uh, uh, President Cho was also saying is that we we will set a new record for number of passengers with 289 of uh, the 289 uh, um, vessel calls this year. That'll have uh, over 1.4 million uh, passengers coming through uh, Seattle, and this will be uh, setting new records in that. But but also uh, as part of this too is the is the using different days of the week. So we have not increased the number of bursts that we've had here, which was our original plan five years ago. But we've done it through uh, optimization, the use of our facility. So next slide, please. So these are just the uh, the budget guiding principles that I've issued to the staff. We must take uh, must take a um, fiscally responsive responsible in a strategic approach to budgeting due to these uncertainties that I was talking about. Um, we want to ensure efficient operation of our business gateways and looking at that, wait, m look at ways to make them, uh, make, keeping them more competitive in what we're doing and, and just um, increasing the efficiency of them. We want to support uh, equitable economic growth through a balanced approach to both our capital improvement plan and continued investments in equity and community programs. We know that's important to you on both those efforts as well. We want to continue to invest in our employee recruitment, retention, and development because we, we believe that uh, our most valuable asset is our workforce. And for us, uh, continuing, uh, it's now reached, uh, you heard the other day in the budget retreat, over the last five years, we replaced 45% of our, uh, our workforce. And so that's a, a, a turnover that various factors in that, but that's just uh, where we are in that process. Uh, we're great. We brought on a lot of great new talent, but that will continue to be a focus for us, uh, investment in our workforce going forward as well. And we'll continue to make uh, strategic investments focused on sustainability and achieving our sustainability goals moving forward into the future as well. So those are our budget guiding principles that are issued to staff, and I think they reflect a lot of your feedback that we've had in those principles uh, early on in the first budget retreat as well before we finalize those. Next slide, please.
And these are the strategies. We'll continue to uh, incorporate a sustainable expense growth assumptions into our uh, budgets and our business plans. And that'll be, again, looking at ways to increase revenues, but do it in a sustainable way going forward. Carefully evaluate the need for additional uh, FTEs for new positions. So we want to manage that growth in, uh, and mitigate um, our recruiting backlog. You know, last year and the year before, we were reluctant to bring on a large number of new positions because we hadn't filled the positions that we had already. And we're working hard, uh, Katie Gerard uh, in the HR department is working hard on filling those. And we, matter of fact, uh, in the weekly updates that I give, you can see we're working hard on how many vacancies we have and how many we've filled. We've filled over 300 positions already in, uh, at the port in, uh, in 2023. Wow. Um, we ought to incorporate in our planning, continue to high inflation into operating and then capital plans. Of course, we'll continue to monitor the inflation related to capital because that has impact of project costs moving forward. And then uh, we, we are really looking at capital delivery. I heard some questions about capital delivery from the commissioners as well. And that in includes all aspects of that, not just the, the funding level, but it's, and it's not just the engineering, the project management. It's, uh, um, it's having the resources in, in a central procurement office, in legal staff and everything to make sure we, we're ramping up for that large uh, delivery of that estimated 5.2 billion of capital uh, projects over the next five years to do that. And we want to make sure that we continue, uh, you know, looking at ways to, to make that a better, more efficient process. And we'll continue using equity lens in developing and reviewing the budget budgets and our, our operational plans going forward. And again, um, we've looked into the uh, expenditures of uh, in the equity uh, lenses that as well. So we'll continue to look at those tools. And then you know, I think you'll see further development when we come back to you of how those tools are being applied in the development of the, 20, uh, the 2024 budget. And we're going to uh, focus on resiliency. That's one of the, the things as well, because we need to be thinking about not just uh, it's all risks and all hazards. And that's something that we did about four years ago before the pandemic. We started our view of resiliency assessment. And now I've asked the staff to go back and look at the assessment as we develop the budget going to the future. So we know uh, for the budget for 2024, we can reflect, well, how does this investment help us as regards to resiliency as well? So. They'll be looking at sustainability, equity, and resiliency when you when we look at um, uh, we look at those investments we present to you in the 2024 budget. Uh, next slide, please. And here's just the calendar uh, to show where we are in the process. And each step, we'll probably come back to you and show uh, where we are in the process. And we just completed the uh, um, well right today. We completed the. Uh, completing the the briefing on the calendar right now but we also yesterday had the budget retreat on that in uh, and we're continuing to uh, put together the items and the feedback we received from you there you can see the other items that come back and the next time we'll come back to you is in uh, is in September with the central services budget and portwide budget overview and commission briefing but you can expect to get feedback before that on a review of uh, <coughs> A review of other items, especially the ones that you've identified for a priority to get feedback on. So we have an iterative process in there, which is something we know it's important to the commissioners. And actually, next slide, please. This continues on with the calendar. You can see here we come back to you with the, uh, uh, the tax levy on October 24th, tax levy and plan of finance with that uh, before we come and bring back to you in November the final vote on the budget there. So uh, lots of... Uh, Lots of work ahead of us here, but uh, uh, we look forward to that engagement uh, as we go forward in the process as well. So, 
Well, commissioners, that's all I had on this this part of uh, the presentation. I'll be glad to answer any questions. Great. Any questions for Steve on budget? How'd you get yesterday's retreat down to the <laughs> yeah. presentation? <laughs> well, we have more. We got a lot more feedback, but that was uh, appreciated the feedback, and we'll take that in. Uh, uh, and actually, that'll be useful. Again, I really deeply appreciate the time we had yesterday because I think these two budget retreats have really helped us much earlier in the process um, to have all the pieces we need in order to bring them forward to you with a budget that will reflect uh, um, reflect uh, where we should be going in 2024 and beyond. Awesome. All right. If there are no further questions, thank you, Steve. That concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? Yeah, Commissioner Feldman. I just want to recognize that uh, President Biden uh, created a national monument today named after Emmett Till and his mother, mm. um, who was massacred in 1955 in Mississippi. And uh, there has been, uh, there's also been many uh, signs that were acknowledging the place of his death that had been desecrated and removed over this period of time and that uh, it's important that we remember these things. It was really one of the things that catalyzed the civil rights movement and uh, I'm very pleased that the president has taken that initiative. Thank you, Fred. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Anything else? Commissioner Hasegawa. Just wanted to share that this morning I had the honor of attending on behalf of the Port of Seattle a, um, a signing of the industrial lands policy by Mayor Bruce Harrell alongside Councilmember Dan Strauss and a number of stakeholders who leaned into this years-long process. It required um, a lot of perseverance, um, not only to get it over the finish line and to work on it, but it took courage to acknowledge in the first place um, that we need a dedicated strategy to protect our industrial lands. Um, so I would like to specifically acknowledge the role of port staff over the years. Um, to get us over through many different junctures to this finish line, as well as all of um, my commissioners, except for the one that was recused, um, for <laughs> showing up to provide public testimony, to have those conversations um, with members of the city um, behind closed, closed doors and tough negotiations, and then with stakeholders out in public. Um, this is a tremendous win for businesses and also our community members. Um, and it is a really important promise on behalf of the city of Seattle to our maritime industrial industry, which is, and it's estimated over $8 billion impact statewide. So um, congratulations to everybody on, on that uh, momentous achievement. Thank you, Commissioner Hazegawa. I second those sentiments. Congratulations to the, the team that worked on that really, really important initiative for the port as well as the maritime industry. So with that, hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there's no objection, we are adjourned at 3.17 p.m. Thank you all.